see you, my friend. Absolutely. Good to see you too, Eric. You're back. It's the only time I'm allowed to call them doctors in the first 30 <laughs> seconds of the show. Time number five and the first one in the new studio. That's like right. It. What do you think? Huh? Uh, it's nice. A little more space. A little more space. Same amount of crap, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well put. New, uh, new location. About the same distance from my house. So, all told, oh, it? I think it's fine. Yeah, it's about same uh, distance. 35, 40 minutes from my house. It's, it's interesting to have people on for the first time here that have been prior guests on shows because they walk in and they go, oh, well, it looks like kind of like the same, but different. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's the same aesthetic aura. It's just twice the foot space. It is. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of is. I mean, and people said, well, I, didn't think you'd put a couch in here. I'm like, well, I needed something because it was like so much space. You needed like, a place to sleep. Oh, yeah. I may if I don't quit buying stuff. But my wife's going to kick me out, and I might end up sleeping there. It's entirely possible. So a couple things, my friend. Uh, what the hell have you been doing the past couple months? You do a little traveling too, right? Uh, not much. So last March, I went out to Austria to visit my brother. That was fun. Went Austria. There. Austria. Yeah, it was in Salzburg. So I went there for about 10 days. That was enjoyable. First international travel. Since I was COVID? able to do, yeah, since December 2019. Okay. So it was nice to get out and, and move around, explore that part move of life around. again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, just this summer, we're going to head down to the beach this week, but <clears throat> we uh, I, I've pretty much just been in the office getting work done. It's been nice, um, you know, with childcare and having little ones over the last couple of years. It's oh, yeah. been a challenge, you know, to try and string anything together. But I think it's in the last couple of months have been as at least consistent productivity on the research end as i've had in the last couple of years which is a good feeling to get that going again in your world in your um in your world of academia are we back to normal are we back to the before times so <laughs> the last half ish of the semester in the spring was mask free you know students are obviously welcome to wear them if they want sure. and several did and that's sure. fine um I would hope we are. You know, that's that's kind of the lingering question moving forward towards the fall. Um, I think it's pretty clear over the last couple of years that people want to be in person and, and want to be sure. interacting the way that it was. Sure. Um, you know, masks are a burden, you know, to wear. Not saying on net, yay or nay, but, you know, still costly at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's it wears on everyone. I don't think it's consciously, but I think after a while you just feel worn down in an environment like that. Cause at least in my classroom, it's so much, so much of it's the back and forth and so much of it is the interaction and the challenging of the students and the challenging of the professor by the students and, you know, building knowledge right there in real time. And I, you know, I think mass just, you know, they're a, they're a hamper to that. They're a hurdle to that. And so I, I hope we're back to where we were in, in terms of just how classes run in the fall. It was great lecturing to students, um, you know, at, at the end of the spring semester and just, you know, getting a glimpse of, of the way we'd remembered it had been, you know, the, you know, two years, more than two years prior. So it's, it's nice. Do you think there's anything to the idea that um, students lost something they lost a year or do you think it's more specific to the individual student student? Um, when you think of 2020 in general. Right. I, I myself think of more like the 2020, 2021 right. school year, Correct. that kind of that academic year. Like the fall of 2020 and the spring of 21. Right. Where myself personally, I did nothing but online classes and I didn't think that was going to be a good substitute for me delivering this content in person. It wasn't. It was kind of a make best, you know, make do with what you have where you are kind of situation. Um, I, I do... I hope this isn't the case, but I do feel like 
there was kind of at least maybe like the freshman class that year didn't really get like their first college year and seen the performance of the students in my class at the principal's level classes who are sophomores that right. would have been freshmen that year. Right. You know, it was, it was, it was the worst of, of my 13 years. I'm hoping that was just a one-off that's, that's horribly unlucky and unfortunate for that class. If, mm-hmm. if they are, you know, kind of permanently on their back foot their whole way through their college experience. Cause they just didn't get that good first kind of go. They're always kind of a few steps behind. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not the case moving forward. Um, Hopefully, you know, the machine gets up and, and rolling again. Cause Probably the, the hardest for the freshmen, right? Because, I mean, they come I would, in. I would think so because, you know, college is, for many of them, a big change from high school in terms of um, necessity of studying hours need to be put in. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of need to trial by fire in some of those early classes. And I don't teach freshmen. Uh, rarely do I teach freshmen. Rarely, rarely do I have a freshman in my class. I don't teach, like, classes of freshmen. Um, but the people that do... do a fine job of preparing them for what I need out of them as sophomores. And I would suspect that they similarly kind of had their hands tied at the sophomore level. What made me actually really happy in this last year was doing sports econ last spring. Those are upper division kids. And so they would have had, let's see, I guess normal, broadly speaking, normal freshman, normal, most of sophomore weird junior and then maybe back to approaching some semblance of normal senior year, maybe. I, I, I think I'm getting the years right. Um, and that sports econ group was one of the strongest I had. So maybe it's the case that, you know, we had that hiccup and it was what it was. And hopefully moving forward, we're, we're back to producing great students. Not, it- not that they're bad. It's just that back we're back to executing as, as we could execute as a university and as a college. Okay. What about you? Does it feel more normal now? Does it – do you start – I mean, do you – I guess I'm always interested in people's perception based on their vocation, the before and the after. Are right. we kind of getting – I asked musicians recently, Matt, and sure. they're telling me the same thing consistently, that it's great to be playing live. It's good to see people. It's good to interact with the musicians on their, in their band or on their ensemble again. It's great. But they look out and they see their clients, which are their customers, their fans, and they're – of the belief that, you know, they don't feel like we're quite there yet. Sure. Now, you, again, you see these big concerts where there's thousands of people, and it sure looks from afar that we are. Right. But the artist is telling me, in here, not yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I sure could tell you, I mean, at least for me personally, and, and any students that I talked to, boy, they were happy to come back and see everyone's faces and be in class, and that was something they really, really liked. Is there a little, a I guess. Trepidation or something? Or for lack of a better term, like PTSD, that's still there okay. with the the just everything that's been thrown at them for the last couple of years, whether right it's on. the university and safety policies. And again, not denigrating that or saying it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was it wrong it or anything. It, it was what it was, and that can't mm-hmm. be changed. Um, you know, to what they hear, um, you know, in the media about you know uh, constant reports of cases or this or that. You know, it's just a day after day after day, and it's now just we have monkeypox, right? And <laughs> You know, these are, you know, late stage teenagers, 20, 21 year old kids that, you know, now in light of everything that's been going on the last couple of years, are they going to feel guilty going out with their friends, which is what all people that age, that's just, that's part of becoming older is that's what you do at that age. Most people, that's, that's part of the college do. experience. Too. It is right. And it's, and it's unique for every student. I'm not saying every student's going to the South side and doing that whole thing sure. every night, but it's sure. getting together and whether it's a fraternity function or whether it's mm-hmm. a, 
club activity or student government, whatever, all those things, they were all just like axed, you know, just like no more in person. And it's, that's a large portion of what constitutes, you know, evolving over four years or five years at a university and becoming who you are. And so it's just, I don't know. I always tried to, you know, give them as much leeway as possible with this. This is hard for them too. You know, this is, this is hard for them. And I do hope for their sake as a collective that it's, it's, it's back to as much as normal as it can be in the fall. If not a hundred, then can we get, can we get 95 of the way oh, there right on. with just people's experience being like, this is how college should be. What about those kids that were, let's say during the 20, the fall 20 and the spring 21 year, that uh-huh. is the school year. Yes. What about those kids that were seniors? Like that, that's how they kind of went out. I know. Yeah, that's a really strange. Now we, now you're, you've lost them. Yes. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, so they would have had a normal freshman and sophomore year. Again, the, the, the normal student, if, if you will. Right. They would have had the end of their junior year lopped off. And then their entire senior year would have been either virtual, what, what, virtual or what Duquesne. So I did mine completely virtually live synchronous is what they call it. Synchronous synchronous. So like live, whereas okay. uh, um, virtual asynchronous would be like, I record my lectures and you could watch them whenever you want. Yeah. I got a problem with that. I mean, it's some people did that and that's fine. Um, but then Duquesne also had this thing. I know we've talked about this on previous shows was the, called high flex, yeah. which different by particular classroom, but generally speaking about 40% of the class shows up in person distanced around the classroom. And then the remaining portion of the class attends via zoom. And that, now that happened in the spring of 21. That happened fall, 20? fall 20, spring 21. Oh, that happened in fall 20. Oh yeah. That was their big thing that they wanted to push in fall 20 because, okay, cool. um, I didn't know that. Well, they did a survey uh, so March, 2020, we shut it down. Right. Uh, the semester ends up, everyone limps to the finish cause no one's prepared to do live courses on lights. Just, uh, you know, you're doing whatever you can to, to get through. And so they surveyed the students, um, after the spring 2020 semester. And they're like, well, what do you think of the classes? And they went to online. What do you want? Et cetera. And the students not surprisingly said, we want classes in person. Sure. We want them in person. And so the university was real big on saying, high flex students one in person we're doing high flex we're doing high flex we're doing high flex and high flex wasn't i uh, the students i talked to just trying to interview them or get a sense for the lay of the land how's the high flex going they said people aren't really showing up they know if they can get it on zoom they don't need to show up in person yeah they said it's not going great i know some professors that taught in it weren't a huge fan of it um i had a sense that all at one time managing students in a classroom while staying in one place because you can't move around the classroom and I'm all over the place when I lecture, talking into a camera, making sure the microphone works, making sure the camera's pointed at the whiteboard, dealing with questions from Zoom. It's just a lot to juggle at once. I mean, it's, you know, having X amount of students in a classroom, your goal is always to try and, you know, get the train moving and, and, you know, get the elephant up the hill and get the momentum going in class. And sure. I kind of took a step back and I'm like, that's just a lot to juggle. That's just a lot. So I did mine all online. It was... It was a unique experience. Bought an iPad, had the iPad join into the Zoom, and the iPad's the whiteboard, right, so right, students right. could ask questions in real time. It's making the best, you know. We always, you know, maximize subject to constraints is always what we say in economics, and you know, those were the constraints, and that's I think the best. You know, I, I never thought of my responsibility of delivering a live course in person in the classroom. I always view my responsibility as deliver the best course you can 
to these students, deliver the best version of what you could do given what's in front of you. And normally that's in person. That's, I don't do PowerPoint. Everything generated live, models derived no problem, live. No PowerPoint. No PowerPoint. Not unless I need to do, um, oh, I don't even really do PowerPoint. Usually when I teach uh, macroeconomics in the spring, you cover a wide range of, you know, the, the inflation and unemployment sure. and economic growth, like all the kind of big country level stuff. Only thing I ever pulled the screen on for that is just there's this data set out there. It's called Fred. I think it's Federal Reserve Economic Data is what it's called for. I think it's out of the St. Louis Fed. And they've got like tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of like data series. So you could pull up like, you know, GDP growth, you know, annual GDP growth in the United States since, you know, 19... You know, fifty or something like that. It's great just to get that visual up on the board when sure. you're talking about it. Because sure. one nice thing about macro that I like to say, because I'm not a huge macro fan, I like doing micro stuff a lot more, and my research is all micro. One nice thing about macro that I think students can take away from it is they get a sense for the best way I could say it is like what the numbers should be. So, like, let's say, um, and this has been a remarkable couple of years to teach macroeconomics. I can by imagine. The way. I can imagine. You know, before that, you know. If you read in the newspaper um, or online, um, inflation in the United States is projected next year to be five and a half percent. What's that mean? Like, is that is that a lot? Is that not that much? Like, I hope frame when of reference exactly yeah. a frame of reference. And so, I would hope that leaving the course, if they go moving forward, and let's say we're having this conversation in 2019, you know, wow, five and a half percent. Usually, we're around like two ish like mm -hmm. wow that's for us that's pretty decent but there's some countries that have it worse so like at least that frame of reference and the context for it you know now it's like you know you put up the inflation on the board last semester and it's like you're you're seeing something i really haven't even seen in my lifetime either i mean like this is historically high i just want to like i, think I saw it i thought as a kid in, in like 79 and 80 i think i saw something similar to the same was right that, was that about, was in, that the, about right in the mid 70s yeah, yeah. And volker comes in and you know takes the hardline effort to try and beat down inflation i remember so my parents bought their home in san francisco in um I think it was 1972 okay and they remember you know interest rates on homes being like double digits mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and i mean that's I mean, how you're a realtor. You, yeah. I mean, how, I wasn't a realtor back then. <laughs> I'm not that how, old, buddy. I mean, how would you? What what are what are what are mortgage rates at now? I don't know. Like ball, like ballpark. What are we looking it's at? Like five, five. Because yeah. I feel like when we Close, little, I think ours is like a little less than four. Yeah. But yeah. we've got inflation's high. I mean, are you seeing mortgage rates like tick up, tick up, tick up, tick oh, yeah, up? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, but the the rapid fluctuations is something I haven't seen. Just like the the scope of the fluctuations rapidly and quickly, and and the volume of it. It's it's um that's been. I mean, it's it. I'm not in that game day in day out. I mean, sure. I trust my client and their lender. I mean, I think realtors make a mistake sometimes. Mad and going off on a tangent, but I believe that we make a mistake when we try to wear too many hats, especially when we're not legally able to sure we pretend to do that yeah realtors want to know everything sure i stay in my lane these are still i mean you know 15 or even 30 year right. you know, mortgages and Correct. so they try to project inflation across you know so i mean it's a fair way of saying like all right it's high now but we maybe have some belief that the fed's going to attack this in 18 24 months from now it may be yeah. back to a and in, in, a in the end americans also like that concept of refi so in theory you're saying okay yeah i'm gonna pay a little bit of um I may pay may higher right now, but the hope is it's going to drop back into the twos again. And it makes sense. And I'll to, have some closing costs to pay, but I'll lock right. something in then. And I think that's and that's a that's a maneuver. 
You know, it's not an illegitimate maneuver, but again, it's an element of risk sure. involved with that. Right, but, um, right, right. But yeah, double digit. We were, I was worried about that. I mean, I, I'm still worried that maybe, you know, depending on what happens in the next couple of months, we might be up around nine, ten. I think it's last month was nine one. I think. Don't quote me on that. It's somewhere up around nine. And yeah, I think you could hit. I think double digits is out there. This generation has never seen inflation. Never. never. I mean, I and, was born in 1979. Yeah. I mean, certainly any working memory I have is not inflation like this. Yeah. Last time it was around here was the mid-70s. We would hear, um, for those who had an interest in economics at all, even a casual interest, you would hear in, you would hear other countries, oftentimes, <clears throat> unfortunately, third world countries, they would see, what's they call it, uh, rapid inflation is the term for that? Hyperinflation. Hyperinflation. Yeah. You hear like these ridiculous things, 300% annually. Like, you, we, can't wrap oh, our mi- we can't wrap our minds oh, around not, that. I mean, it's... Uh, the best you could say for things like that, when when it gets to be hyperinflation, um, understandably, it gets hard to measure because things are changing just so quickly, and and you know usually there's a lot of black market transactions there too. So it's kind of hard to officially measure where, you know, inflation does have some shortcomings just as a measure, even when you're measuring it in the United States. But measuring inflation at three, four, five percent, even nine percent, like I'm I'm pretty confident nine percent is pretty close to what inflation is actually going to be. When you have something like, you know. Uh, like Zimbabwe, they're the ones, the notes I always show in class of the $100 trillion bills. Um, you know, I, I don't even know what the annual inflation, but it'd be something like one to the, you know, 10 trillion, you know, whatever it is. So it's one to the 10 to the 16th. It's almost nonsense. Right. Basically, a, a workable way of that I try and tell my students is like, this is not, this isn't going to be exactly accurate, but this is the way you need to think about it is imagine prices doubling every day. Like, like that's 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 getting you in the realm of hyperinflation and what's going on. And so Zimbabwe was there, uh, Venezuela most recently, um, historically Germany in the 30s, you know, had a bunch. Right. Hungary right after World War II had a bunch. Right. I mean, there's these instances that people know um, of hyperinflation. And, you know, I tell the students in class, I'm like, look, like it doubles a day. And that may not even really be hitting you, but let's like, let's go through that. Your Happy Meals, five bucks on Monday. It's 10 bucks on Tuesday. It's 20 bucks on Wednesday. 40 on Thursday, 80 on Friday. Like that's, that's what you're talking about is that level. Right. Right. And so that's always a good place to talk about and and talk about the, this idea of the velocity of money. How quick does money like circulate throughout an economy? And so I always try and get students to put themselves like into the models, but it's so hard to put yourself into like a hyperinflation situation because they just, I, 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 I've never been in one. Right. It's just so hard to like their whole lives have been like 3% inflation. How on earth can they imagine something that's just foreign Right. And so it's like, you know, things like think about your last job and how often did you get paid at your last job? And I'm like, I get paid every other week. A lot of people get paid every other week. Some people get paid once a month. Some people get paid weekly. Like, is that a contributing factor for you when you take the job? And they're like, no, I mean, I'll go get paid. Yeah, you'll get paid. No, I agree. It's not really a contributing factor. Now stick yourself in Zimbabwe. How often do you want to get paid? control them a little bit but like daily daily how about twice a day my god things are going like you go out to lunch you come back and prices are higher you know so it's just hyperinflation uh, hyper i mean hyperinflation is obviously wrecks economies because there's just no monetary foundational basis anymore it, I, what ends up happening is like in zimbabwe the money becomes so worthless that the, excuse me the currency becomes so worthless that no one ends up using it and since it's not commonly accepted believe it or not that currency actually isn't defined as money it's actually not money becomes worthless right right and so no one accepts it and when it's not commonly accepted you actually don't have money anymore it's actually not money it's currency but it's not money because it's not being accepted and so what happens is you just end up with like american dollars over there as being the default currency until things shake out it might still well be i mean 
I know Zimbabwe now is not in the midst of, of what it had been recently, but I'm not sure it's exactly like leading the world in like fiscal austerity. <laughs> probably, probably not. <laughs> what do you think is one of, if I don't know, you determine the, the, um, the scope of it. One of the most misunderstood factors of, of basic economics by Americans, whether it's we choose not to pay attention or understand it, or we, 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 we willfully go ignorant toward it, or we just listen to talking heads. What do you think is that misunderstood concept about our economics in this country? I think if I had to pick something right now, and if you asked me tomorrow, I'd probably say something different. But if I had to pick something right now, it would be kind of, and I think these go hand in hand, it would be kind of the misunderstanding of where value comes from and kind of the the misunderstanding of where profit comes from. They're kind of related. And just the way that you see people want to go after and support widely these policies of like, we need to tax wealthy people and redistribute it to others. This idea that there's kind of this fixed pie out there to be had and that needs to be more equitably, equitably distributed amongst individuals and that it can be simply done by just taxing and then going in and giving money to someone else. And, you know, it kind of people view profit as evil or taken from other people when, you know, profit is, is the value you created less the cost it took you to create that value. You know, that's, you know, I have a colleague, you've spoken to Andy Davies and he has sure, so many, of you. so many great one-liners, so many great one-liners of just like ways of looking at things that, these, I mean, it's, it's the smartest people in the world like him that are able to like say things that are like so easily understood. Mm-hmm. So many, I've, I'm sure I've complained about this before. There's so many papers in economics that you read and you're done and you're like, wow, I'm more confused than when I started. Like that's. <laughs> so you get that too? I don't feel so bad oh, now. <laughs> no, it's like you just, some of this stuff. I remember, um, I remember, a, I remember a story from grad school where, um, when you're in like a PhD program, it's not uncommon for, um, job market applicants to come and give like the Friday research lecture. Usually like in the fall, um, you have different economists come in, friends of friends that come in, you know, and give research talks for like 60 minutes, 90 minutes on a Friday afternoon. And then everyone goes out to the brew pub afterwards and chats and just has a good time. And that's kind of like what we did at West Virginia. And that's not uncommon to, to West Virginia. That happens at a lot of places. And I remember going to a job market talk so those would be in the spring because all the interviews mainly take place like right after new year's in economics and then like the job market kind of extends february march april that's just kind of the calendar for how you get jobs in economics okay and so it would have been in the springtime and a candidate came out from wherever it was don't remember the candidate don't even remember the professors i'm going to talk about to be honest with you i just remember being in the hallway hearing this and one professor turns to the other after the talk and says, I don't think I understood one word of that. <laughs> it must have been really good. And I'm uh, like, that's not, I don't think that's it. I think you want, you want, we're teachers at the end of the day. I think you want uh-huh. people to learn. So, Certainly. Anyway, so Certainly. this Andy Davies quote, which I'm going to forget about here. He was like, oh, yeah. It's some, don't, don't speak about it as like, you know, Jeff Bezos has... 80 million, $80 billion in profits. Think of it as like he's created, you know, $80 billion in value yeah, over. And certainly. I think if people We're just, would, it's taught wrong. Right. And so, you know, I think if people could understand value and what profit signifies and how profit is earned and the role of profit, you know, as of right now, if, if I had to pick one, I think I would pick that as the top one. So let's talk about something, pack out a little bit. So naturally my response is going to be, well, it's being misconstrued for the masses 
by politicians, corporations? I mean, who does the who who feeds that out? Is it easier to take that stance, intellectually easier to take the stance that it's evil? This is a big, this isn't a downside of economics. This is just the battle that we have to face. And this is coming back to this show, why I love doing and pretty much only do long form stuff anymore is because everything else is sound bites. We're glad you're here, buddy. Yeah. It's, I, I love it. And I've, I did long form stuff um, earlier in my career with Ron Morris, who's since passed away, but he had a radio show that would do like 25 minute segments at a go and we just kind of like do them back to back. And I love the long form stuff because in economics, I feel like what we're battling is the short answers that are wrong, that sound really good, need to be countered with answers that are longer. And that doesn't lend itself well to sound bites, which is why I love so much when people like Anthony Davies come up with these like quick one-liners that you could like, Cuts it's like through. Add in, it's like add it to the arsenal, right? And I always, you know, tell students in class that too. It's like, well, if you know, talk about this stuff with your friends. And by the way, here are some common like, here's what they're kind of going back at you with, and then here are the one-liners that you give back to them in that situation. So it's always trying to educate, but realizing that we live in a soundbite society. You know, tweets are what 140 100%. characters. You know, like it's just the world's running by that. Yeah, That's so scary. We. You know, I think the burden is on us to come up with these, you know, not attacks, not even bullets. I'm like talking about these arguments back, these quick, you know, arrows that we can pull out quick and we can move back with and say, no, like that's here's the way you want to think about it. And here's a quick way to do that. And I always love coming across things like that. And Annie Davis is really, really good at doing those. I, I just know that we've got a problem in society in regards to envy, which, you know, that's a whole different topic. Sure. But but. Part of that is the, you know, we're lusting after perceived circumstances of other people, and it often goes back to money. Right. And then I guess when you, when you were mentioning that, it's also this idea of envy, but it's based in like, not, not only do I envy what you have, but you got it in a foul manner. And, you know, where does that come from? a misunderstanding of profit you know at the end of the day it's just like or, wow or you capitalism and you general? have a lot of money therefore you must have like that some of that should be mine but you right. got it and right so it's like envy with something else that i i'm blanking on the word on right now but like suspicion or anger or you know like how dare you kind of a thing like how that can't possibly all be yours so does, kind is of a that thing. a misunderstanding of capitalism yeah, I mean, you could frame it like that. I mean, it's a misunderstanding of, of, of how profit is generated and how markets work and who is rewarded in the market system and a voluntary trade. I mean, kind of all, I mean, that's all kind of describing capitalism in its purest mm -hmm. form, if you want to talk about it like that. And then also the idea, too, and I don't think it's unrelated to what we've just talked about, the idea that the government is to play a prominent role in the generation of incomes or the generation of you know, insert blank here, this idea that government needs to play an active and prominent role. Isn't in, that the in, problem? In the, absolutely it is, right? You know, it's, it is never a problem in this country over the last however many years you want to talk about it, of the government doing too little. It is not in the least, you know. And, you know, there's uh, regulation is, it's funny when you read papers, I guess ironically funny, when you read papers that try to, try to, um, Try to quantify like regulation. That's like tough to like do. Justify it? Not justify it. Try to like put a number to it. So like if okay. you're gonna put like okay. unemployment into your model, that's okay. you just take the rate and off you go. Like unemployment, I, I bring this up in class too. Like unemployment, like that's just kind of lends itself to being a number. 
you, what it's capturing may not be capturing fully what you think unemployment is, but at the end of the day, unemployment is like count the labor market or count the labor force, count those that have a job, count that are looking. Like that's how you come up with it. It lends itself very much to being a number. So is inflation. Okay. Again, it might not be exactly right, but that's the kind of thing that seem like numbers should go to. Same with GDP. Like we're counting stuff. It seems like a number. Now if I go, um, let's look at the 50 United States. On a scale of 1 to 10, how burdensome is Pennsylvania's regulatory system? That's like not really a, like that's not the same kind of question, right? No. Like five? Like, what's that mean? Like what's that even mean? So it's funny to read papers to see how they try to quantify that. And what they do sometimes is they actually count like the number of words of regulation. It's not perfect, and that, and but it's creative. Okay. I mean, that's one. Is, there, is it relevant? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be. I mean, is it is that going to be a perfect proxy for, for regulatory burden? No, it's not. Is it that inconceivable that more highly regulated states have more lines of law on their books? That seems half. I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but it's not unreasonable, you know? So it's just interesting to see how people try and, and look at that and, you know, trying to assess the impact of the government on the economy runs into a lot of issues of how do we get a really good number to this? Or how do we get a number that's really going to try and capture best what the government's doing and what impact it has on our output? Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting how a, a good swath of the public over the last couple of decades in my lifetime has become okay with the concept of the government dealing money. I know. The way they, to the, directly to the public. It's fascinating to me. I mean, that's, you know, a couple of years ago, that's what we started seeing. The government's now starting to cut checks. I got checks. I've got a couple of kids. Like, I got checks on their behalf. And just because I was who I was, you know, that's really the, in, in that shape and form, that's really the first time that it happened. I realize there's child tax rights and stuff like that. That's not, I mean, those have been around. But in terms of just like, we're going to pass something that says, what was it, 1500 bucks per person, something like that, I don't know, some amount of money. And then another one. Right. And then I think there's a third one after that, I believe. So, yeah, it's something. It's um, you know, a lot of proponents of like a, 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 I think I call it a universal basic income. Let's talk about are, that for a second. So are, what what is that? Because that's getting floated around a lot. Yeah. Now. The idea that the government's basically not going to spontaneously decide to send out checks, that they're going to just go and actually send checks to people just for being people. So. Every single person in uh, can pay to breathe. Yeah, every single person in Pittsburgh gets a thousand bucks a month, five hundred bucks a month. Well, whatever you know, obviously whatever it's going to be, but that would be or every person if, if that would be city level, obviously if it's state level, if it's federal level, you know, gets X amount. If you have you know two dependents, then it's triple that, or you know they adjust it or whatever. It is. So I'm sure you've heard people who are proponents of this probably speak. What what is their justification for that? What is the What's the, how, where is their belief founded in? I think their belief would be founded in this idea of a vicious cycle that's going to exist. And so, like, poverty is going to beget more poverty, and these people just can't get out of this vicious cycle. And so, if we can help them by virtue of cash payments, it may help them kind of get the momentum going on their side and that things would kind of accelerate from there. That would be that's, – that's the best argument that I think I've run across for that. Um, other arguments that I've heard – have been, you know, uh, everyone should have at least this much money a month. That's more of a philosophical argument. That's not an economic argument. But they're just, everyone should have at least this much a month. It's not right that someone would ever have less than this. So 
everyone should have this much. That's so arbitrary, though. Like, wow. I mean, I, you know, I have to set the level somewhere. I mean, I understand that, whether it's 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 or whatever it is. I mean, you do have to set the level somewhere. And the people that have tried to think it through or justify it, the best argument you could make is we could try that. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that in a fiscally somewhat responsible manner, then... How's that look? Well, then you'd need to basically slash like all the other welfare programs to pay for it. So like, look, we've got this whole welfare system thing that's set up that aims to do a lot of things. Maybe it doesn't do it terribly well, but there's money being spent on unemployment insurance. There's money being spent on mm -hmm. um, um, Medicaid. There's my, all, all of that stuff that goes along with the lower end of the income scale. Um, drop those programs and replace it with this idea of universal basic income, which it if someone's coming at it from that angle, at least they're, they're realizing there exist budget constraints and we can't just print and give out money. At least they realize that, which like in light of the current level of, of knowledge, at least they're saying that I don't necessarily agree with it, but at least, at least they realize there's trade-offs here. Not just like, yeah, just add a thousand a person to the existing, you know, head count and off we go. It'll work out. You know, like at least it's okay. We're gonna have to cut some stuff to do that. I think the average citizen now hears these numbers I, I think we, I might have said this in a prior show, like when I was a child, when you heard something on the news, like CBS News in, let's say, the early 80s, Dan Rather says something like this. Well, the U.S. government's uh, appropriate defense spending for the next, uh, for 1984 is $200 million. That $200 million was fathomable amount of money. Oh, yeah. It's just now, it's like nothing. I know. It's all funny money. These man. packages that have been passed, the recent ones over the last couple of presidents related to this COVID stuff, I mean, they're like 1.1 trillion, you know, 800 billion, 1.4 trillion. I mean, they're just like. Me included, but the average citizen cannot get their mind around what a trillion of anything looks like. There's a great, there's uh, many great visuals for this, but there's a great visual where it's like, like a cube is a million and then they extrapolate out to that one little red cube being part of a thousand bigger ones. So that would represent a billion and that one's part of a thousand, right? A million is one millionth of a trillion. Man. You know, visuals like that help because I, I, we mentioned this a lot in class too. It's like, you know, you're going to run across people in your life that are going to, you're going to be able to give numbers to them and they could just kind of understand that. I'm wired like that for better or worse, like numbers, I've always just been a numbers oh, sure, person. Sure. And that's, and that's yeah, fine. Yeah, absolutely. But not everyone's like that. And that's fine too. Understood. Like that's totally fine. Understood. So it helps to have a lot of different ways of like saying things. So like saying, you know, a million is one millionth of a trillion. That might hit some people one way. 100%. Showing the cubes. 100%. You know, you just like take a step back and you're like, yeah. wow, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, for that's sure. another way. So I always like to have lots of different ways to try and say things. I get that. Um, but no, it's hard to wrap your head around that much money. It's hard to wrap your head around that much money. It's just... How much? How much of society just dismisses it though? Like, because it just goes in one ear and out the other. The numbers don't hold any weight because it's we're so conditioned. It's just all funny money, and it we we don't see an immediate impact outside of maybe the last year. We've never really seen an immediate impact to my my life. If someone says, "Oh, they're going to spend an extra hundred million on the defense this year," okay, right. And, and my sense recently for people that aren't struck by this is this idea of be it the federal deficit or the next stimulus package or the GDP of the United States, whenever I'm told these numbers, it's always in trillions. And so that's just the level that these things operate at is trillions. Like used to be billions. Right. Well, they don't even go that and far. It was millions. They don't even go that far. They're just like, yeah, it's just, you know, 
It's in trillions. It's just, that's just like the size of the game that we're playing here. And so therefore we must have policies that are in trillions because that's otherwise it's a drop in the bucket. I'm not justifying it with that, but I think that's what people, it's just, you know, that's what's what the is. next number quadrillion. <laughs> I mean, that's so far off. That, I just, I wonder that, that's not possible, right? Well, we could look back and see, cause that would be the same thing as saying, obviously apples to oranges a little bit here, but when, when was the size of the game of government and economics ever like in the one billion dollar range for like a federal budget and maybe the economy this would be easy to look up the economy was like 20 billion dollars because trillion would look as silly then as quadrillion would look now and i'm just curious how long it took to get oh, there oh i see what you're saying i should have that knowledge more readily available but That's okay. again you don't tell me topics ahead of time so no, sir <laughs> <laughs> no but I, no i i get it it's the it is for the citizen it's the frame of reference for sure but it's it's mind-numbing it, and again i i just think people look at it as monopoly money yeah which it's is so, really messed up. It is. No, it is. And I mean, I'm sure that contributes part of it, you know, because, you know, you're. I remember, um, remember, I was president of my class when I was in college. And so we had a budget to spend collectively. Uh, the student okay. government had a budget to spend collectively of, I don't know, what, $100,000, maybe something like that. I can't remember. And this is before I was really any sort of, you know, took any public choice classes. This was an undergrad. And it's just amazing, you know, people respond to incentives big time, you know, and, and when these elections took place, it was like spring break to spring break. So I was president for like the very end of my sophomore year and then like most of my junior year. And, you know, you, when it turns over, the budget turns over too. So it's like you get down to those final months, you're like, yeah, spend this shit, man. Like we got to go out, we got to spend that. So, you know, people are, I think, very hyper. <laughs> you do have to spend it. Um, I know, but I think I'm thinking about government now. It's all well, no, but people are, people are very hyper sensitive and hyper in tune to their budget. You know, most people are pretty hyper sensitive to what's going on and, and responding incentives and saving. And like, they're most people, broadly speaking, I think, can get by on that stuff sure. and not just go nuts. But when it comes to stuff that's not yours, it's just like going, you know, the government's not theirs. So they don't really have this, you know, they don't have this feeling, sense yeah. of like they're wasting all this money. You know, it's just because it's, it's, it's like their, it's always it's not their money to waste. Right. I mean, yeah, most of it isn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, I, that, that's my sense on that one is it just it's it seems it's just so far away from like spending $10 on a meal. Like you go and spend $10 on a meal and then you open up your webpage and see there's a $4.4 trillion like federal budget. It's just like, it's not the same universe, you know? And I think people have a hard time getting their head around that. I have a hard time getting my head around that. And I think about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think also we talked a little bit about the public having um, interesting ideas on what capitalism actually is. They also have interesting ideas or misunderstandings of what actual socialism is. Cause that word gets bounded about not by, not by the bulk of society, but there's elements in society that actually were socialist proponents. We got it. There's even a senator I think who's, who claims to be a socialist, you know, in, in philosophically, anyways. So and these and going both ways, both you know, socialist and capitalist. You know, these are words that are bandied about as insults to the other side. So it's mm -hmm. not like they. It's not like they want to get it right. They just want when whatever baggage comes along. Come, when, did, when did the word capitalist become an insult? In America, I mean, 
I, I, that I don't know, but it has, you know, I, absolutely. It but, has. Uh, but look what, at, you know, they'll say, look at Elon Musk, greedy capitalist, you know, that's used in a pejorative manner. It is, <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it is, you know? And so then these words get, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, those words you're using them in a way. I don't think you know what it actually means. It's, well, now they're most just Americans. insults, you know? And they're so, picking that up from their, you know, their side or whatever. Yeah, but of course, yeah, but to understand what socialism is, I mean, socialism has devastated factually. I, I know this to be true. Socialism, socialism has devastated populations of countries on the earth for centuries, for at least over a century, over a yeah, century, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely, it has, or at least the idea of collectivization, and, right, and and you know, group ownership of the means of production. I don't think it's ever been proven to actually work that's a very popular line that people would like to say like well we need to really try the the pure socialist experiment because what the, the the funny throwaway line is well that wasn't real socialism right well that wasn't that didn't work because it wasn't real socialism well, how did they define roughly speaking real socialism i mean if you want to go back to you know the Karl Marx description of mm -hmm. exactly what he wants sure mm -hmm. i suppose it's not exactly that but if you want to go the other direction you haven't had pure capitalism either we do know that we have a spectrum of capitalism. That's what I say in classes. We have this spectrum of government systems. And right. we're oversimplifying it by making it one-dimensional, but take me for the time being. Capitalism on one side, socialism on the other. We've got a spectrum of different mm -hmm. systems that are there. Mm -hmm. Some are a little bit closer to here. Some are a little bit closer there. Some are in the middle. And if you start looking at trends, the side's doing a lot better than this side. That's about the best way you could say it. But no, okay. that, that's a it's an empty platitude to say it. Any 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 um, criticism of socialism is moot and null because real socialism has never been tried. That's not a legitimate argument. Yeah, my my argument's always been what I learned when I was younger uh, through lectures. It's just you it you can't take away human achievement, the desire to achieve, and the desire to better oneself. That's somehow it's been proven that that's in us, and when you attack capitalism or you try to hamper capitalism in favor of a socialist environment you're basically quelling that or trying to quell that and it doesn't work i mean that that's the real beauty i think at the end of it of a capitalist system is it takes that inner desire to want to make yourself and your family better off and it translates that into making society better off that's, no question so you're pointing in the same direction and that's good and you, you cleave that link when you you have you know non-private property it isn't a system of no private property and interesting enough, um, you can say that that's progress, and it's interesting how the word progress has actually been co-opted for the other direction. <laughs> Progressive or progression sure. is now co-opted more toward a socialist utopia than a capitalist utopia. It's, and so that's what I mean when I said earlier. It's like it's what are what is the public being spoon-fed? Yeah, this year, right? Whatever trend, what is trendy to say this year? We just. We're so gullible as a people. We're and just, I mean, you know, gobble it up. as we mentioned earlier, you know, it's still this desire of people to want to have this explained to them in perfect clarity in five seconds. Of course. You know, like what's, of course. so you just end up down some very weird paths when all you're doing is try to understand complex things in a couple sound bites. You know, it's just, it's tough. And so, it's the it's lack tough. of, uh, it's the lack of critical thinking. From the masses, and as we, as, it's one of the reasons why I do this podcast is to slow it down, yes. and do long form, and because yes. I, obviously, if we're not taking the time to remember how we were taught to think in stages and and everything, we're so triggered right now. I think not even if we're not outwardly expressing it, we're triggered in our own 
interpretation of what we hear. And I think oftentimes we tend to believe everything we hear, you know, is coming from media as soon as we hear it. Right. Or which, you know, which media is it coming from? I'm only going to trust the ones that I think are falling on and my side because the other ones are just going to lie to me. And you end up in an echo chamber. Yeah. So, and it goes both ways. That's not of a Republican it, thing or a Democrat thing. Of course it does. Thing. Of it course goes it both does. Ways. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, That's why I avoid politics. <laughs> yeah. Well, just, just, there's no, in as the best end, as we in, can. In the end, there's no winner. I, I, I just worry, not worry. I care more about my philosophy. And, you know, I, I this is very oversimplified, but I'm a pro business person. I just really love commerce. I love, I love my understanding of capitalism, but I'm also not a heartless bastard. I also, you know, don't, I, I don't believe in greed if it's going to harm others. But even know? pro business has been co-opted to mean why are you in favor of government bailing out and taking care of businesses that aren't doing well? Ah, okay. And it's like okay, you know. You, someone could say that and could be in favor of that, but it also could be how about the government just gets out of business's way and lets businesses do business I, things. Well, ideally, is that's more toward pure capitalism. Uh, sure, right? right. But I mean, it's just this idea of phrases and yeah. just get taken and weaponized Got in, in the way that you want. No, no, know? I understand. Yeah, no, no I, I totally get that. I totally get that. It would be really interesting, though. Well, let me ask you this. Has there ever been in... in in history, recorded history, have there ever been something close or close or closer than what we have to pure capitalism anywhere on the on the globe? I mean, there is a there's this index called the Economic Freedom of the World Index, and okay. it tries to, on a scale of one to ten, say how much economic freedom an area has um, by a whole bevy of like okay pretty objective measures that do that so that's the task they're looking for so the okay. closer to 10 you are the more economically free you are and the closer to zero the least less economically free you are and so the united states in those rankings tends to come in around like 8 to 10th maybe somewhere in there it varies a little bit year to year but hong kong tends to be up near the very top new zealand tends to be up near the very top really? singapore does so if we want to take that as analogous to more capitalist which maybe yes or no, but sure for the time being, that's fine. There, there are some other places that would have, have gotten it a little bit more right than us, if you want to say. So real world differences between Hong Kong to, yes. to the citizenry, what, what would that be? So there's like five, and again, I, I have to do this from memory, but there's, there's like five different um, areas that they measure. So one is like size of government. One is like openness to international trade. One is like sound money. One's maybe property rights. One's maybe okay. labor market freedom. Okay. I think those are the five. Okay. Um, and there's different sort of, you know, different rules mean different scores on different things in there. So do you have... Um, 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 at will hiring in a labor market, you know, one if yes, zero if no. You know, is, is there like a middle, middle understood? Ground, maybe understood. Um, you know, with regards to uh, sound money, um, the inflation rate, um, maybe growth rate of the money supply. Um, do citizens have access to foreign currencies? Things like that. So they try and measure all this stuff. You know, the the size of the government is you know government expenditures and. Um, you know, uh, budget deficits and like, oh, just how much government do we have? So they try and measure all of that and mash it all together and come up with a number that is as objectively measured as possible. This is not a group that's getting together, like sitting four of us down here and being like, all right, Hong Kong, one to 10, how'd they do last year? Feels like an eight, feels like an 8.5, 8.5. It's not that, <laughs> like they actually, actually try to calculate it. And to their credit, they do calculate it, right? I mean, again, that's something that's going to be very difficult to ever do perfectly, but does this at least... 
get us down the path of trying to make some headway on what's going on in these countries and understanding the outcomes. It does. There are a lot of papers have been written using that. And, you know, a lot of the outcomes that you'd expect to see life expectancies a lot longer in the free. So they, they break it up by, um, by quartiles. So they always look at the top quartile. They do all four, but they look at the top compared to the bottom. Okay. The freest countries versus the least free countries. And, you know, income per capita much higher in the freer countries, life expectancy. Um, believe it or not, um, inequality. So it's this thing called the Gini coefficient is how they measure that. Okay. Actually not determined at all. It's actually no relationship to it. It tends to be pretty flat across all of those. Um, so it's not like freedoms leading to more inequality. Um, it's a freedom is not leading to more inequality. As I understand it, yes. Okay. The most recent uh, work that they've done on that, that's, that is accurate. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, so that's, that's the best way we could try and look at institutional variation across countries and see if we can't make sense. Different rules in different places. We obviously see different results. Can we make any sense of what we're seeing and kind of what's going on there? I've always been puzzled by that, like, you know, I heard a lecture once where the gentleman was talking about virtues of capitalism. It's like, you know, you you have a portion of society that wants to kill the golden goose. Capitalism has given us a society where all these incredible things are possible. But you have an element that would like to just wipe it out and yeah. start over again. Markets have given us have given us our life for certain. So it's yeah. um you know, maybe that's the number one thing that we need to oppress upon people economics wise is just the value of markets. I mean, we're all kind of talking about the same topic here. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, people people misunderstand markets and voluntary trade, and it's frustrating. So the, mis- the misinterpretation or the misunderstanding of the concept of value leads, you, you think, leads to a lot of the envy and well, like I, mockery of the, of the ultra-wealthy in this country. Well, if you're... Yeah, because I, if, if we're going to blame people for having excess profits, you must somehow think that it has to do either with coercively taking that money from other people which the vast majority of that money i'm not saying 100 percent of it but the vast majority of that money that jeff bezos has you know these are market transactions mm-hmm. right there's voluntary mm-hmm. transactions and that comes rooted in the idea that someone's willing to pay for that because you know why did you buy all these lights because you value them more than what the price was to you right that's why the trade happens right you value that light at 40 bucks and the price was 25 that's why you did it you're better off for that right and, you know, the idea that someone could have made that light for five, you know, that's $20 in profit for that individual who loses here. You got your light bulb. They made some profit. They so generated why, some. So some why value. is that so intrinsically evil to some? Because I don't think people understand that. I, I think people, people look at prices. I, What's I, there's there not this, to understand? You'll have to ask them. Okay. <laughs> that's maybe that's, you know, that that's always the goal of of teaching economics especially to college students is understanding the market process understanding what these things mean being particular about the words value and price and cost because those all mean different things a lot of people use them interchangeably in the real world you know what did that cost you what was the price you know that they use that interchangeably and usually you know what people are talking about but you know i say that in the classroom too i'm like there's a few things we need to be really sticklers about here okay the difference in price and cost is a big one and understanding value, right? And price and value are not the same thing, right? You value something beyond the price. That's why you're willing to trade for it, right? Why, right. You're, willing to tra- why are you willing to trade $5 to McDonald's for that meal? 
because you value it more than $5. Correct. Right? And they value the $5 more. Each side thinks they're getting the steal of the deal there. They're like, McDonald's like, I can't believe you're giving me five bucks for this. Right? And the person's like, I can't believe you're selling this to me for $5. I call that a win-win. Right? It is a win-win. Trade is positive sum is what we talk about. Trade's positive, positive sum. Both sum. sides win. And a lot of people think trade to be zero sum. So basically the amount that I've gained in a trade is the amount that you lose. And it's a mindset that goes back to way back to like mercantilism, to be honest with you. Like well, that devalues the system then, perceptually. It, it would just say, mercantilism was the idea that where does the wealth of countries come from? And it's this idea that it comes from how much like what's called specie or like piece, like physical gold, let's say, just for this example. So like think of Scrooge McDuck and like the big old pile of gold. Like that makes him really, really wealthy. And therefore that's what makes an economy and a country really, really wealthy. Got it. So when it comes to international trade, Think about like, let's say I buy something from you. Okay. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm the United States and you're Germany, let's say. And so I buy something from you. So you send me the good. I send you the specie, right? I send okay. you the money, right? That's how the transaction works. Okay. Mercantilism says we're worse off for that because we don't have as much specie. We don't have as much of that gold. We're worse off, right? So it's this idea that exports are great. You exported to me. You got the specie, so you're better off, but I'm equally and oppositely worse off. Right, so it's the idea that trade is so zero sum. A loser. Right, so I think a lot of people are rooted in that. Like, I think a lot of people are rooted in this idea that I spend my five dollars at McDonald's and I'm five dollars worse off. Yes, I ate, but I'm five dollars worse off. Well, you might be eating that stuff, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's this. You know, it's it's. Um, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think it's, it's rooted in that, and again, it's it's not. It's it. I mean, look, we've been talking for how long here about just this topic here to flesh it out and to 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 give the example. Yeah, who's sure. gonna Who's gonna you know, who's going to go beyond, yeah, you're $5 worse off. Didn't you just pay $5 at McDonald's? That's the argument. Like, of course it is. It's, it's like, that's not like, we got to dig deeper for that. But when it's quick, you know, that's why it's nice to have like the one hitters examples, things like that. So for all the years you've been teaching economics, have you ever had um, a student or a group of students uh, prevent, prevent, or I'm sorry, present you a philosophical debate in class um, like I know some students might take economics because they must for their degree, but they might not believe in American economics. They might believe in socialism. They might believe. Have you ever had any of those philosophical debates in class? Um, probably not a whole lot of that. Where it might come up is um, we do some lectures on arguments against trade or like arguments for protectionism in the United States. Like, should we protect our industries? And, um, invariably some of the arguments do go more down the philosophical or the moral path. Like um, what's a reason to, to hamper trade with another country since we know trade makes both of us better off. Is there a reason that we might want to do that? And one of the arguments could be, well um, there's child labor in that country. And morally, I just don't think we should ever be trading with people that have child labor. The issue economically is more complex than that when it comes to child labor. But if you take a stance that child labor is morally wrong and we shouldn't trade, I'd say, fine, that's that's a philosophical stance on that or a moral stance or an ethical stance. I'm not good at discriminating between those words. But that's a, that, that's beyond the scope of economics. That's saying you believe something to be wrong and therefore you shouldn't do it. And so those arguments we could explore in class. And that's fine. It's just usually when we get there, I go, you know, this is – we try and do in this class – what's called positive economics as much as possible. Positive as opposed to normative. So positive is just going to be facts, theory, coming to conclusions, you know, um, minimum wage, 
is going to lead to a decrease in the in the quantity of labor demanded. Let's say that, right? Like we have models, we know that we could test that, we see it out. Like we know that's the case. Someone could still come in and say, "I believe there should be a minimum wage," right? And you could make an economic argument for that. But you know, and 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 if that's where they want to go, then we can't do that in class. I go, but realize you're never in this class going to be harmed or penalized for your normative stance on things as long as you're making economic arguments in support of them, right? Because you could say, look, um, yes, the workers that still have jobs um, would be making a higher wage, not necessarily a higher compensation, but a higher wage. Um, there could be some unemployment offset because of that. Some fewer people may be working, um, but I believe that trade-off is worth it. I, I personally don't agree, but at least you've made an economic argument. Good for you. Okay. You know, like I would, you know, that's, I'm happy when students can get there, be like, you know, there's trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs. Minimum wage is no exception. There are trade-offs. And given those trade-offs, this is my stance. And that is because I think A is worth B and B is not worth A. Okay. Good. At least you're making an economic argument. Got it. Uh, right turn for a second. <laughs> so one thing that always puzzled me, and I'd love to hear, um, someone from academia in your field actually maybe help me understand this. I'm not the normal economist to be you answering questions the, like this. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, you're, you're, you're the perfect guy. I look at wagering markets a lot. I know you do. I know. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. I figured I'd take you on a ride for the first 60 minutes. Uh, the thing that puzzles me is the tax law that we have in this country where, and, and I'm sure there's, there's a name for this and I don't have it at the tip of my tongue, but basically... The more you make, the greater percentage of tax they take from you, which when you sit back and you even try to explain it to anybody and you take the tax out of it, you just talk about a system that does that. The average person is going to go, well, that's not, that's not right. That's, 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 that penalizes somebody. You're really not going to like the name of that tax system. What's that tax? It's called a progressive tax system. Progressive tax system. Okay. That you're, that's, I've heard that before, but it really <laughs> is to me the most egregious thing. And about Amer when it comes to a lot of uh, capitalism in America today, not capitalism, but the way we manage capitalism in this country, uh, our government does and taxes us. It just it's so egregious that the more productive you are, the harder you work, the more you achieve, the more you build and create, and you you're rewarded for this creativity. You're then disproportionately taken from. I say stolen, but you're disproportionately taken from it. it doesn't make logical sense to my brain. What is the argument used to justify that? I would say the argument that to me would make the most sense or hold the most water would be something kind of based in the following. We've got people at all these different ranges of incomes, like across the board, some people on the low end, some people on the high end. But there are some things that we all need to live so like we all need food and we all need shelter and there's just all these things that we all have to pay for not in the same amounts but we all like we kind of have to pay for that stuff in order to live your life and if you view it in those terms it, and i realize that's not a tax in the formal sense but if you view all those like necessities as a tax in the sense that you by not by dictate of the government but but just by life you have to pay that stuff they would argue that that tax is going to be very, very heavily regressive. That's the opposite of progressive. So like as a percent of their income, they're having to pay more for all of that other stuff that's out there that, that you need to live clothing and all that, whatever that may be. So maybe then to try and offset that, it might make sense to tax people a little bit more 
with an income tax at higher income levels. That's about the best argument that I've heard for a progressive tax system. Aside from, so arguments like that are fine. I think they're only worth visiting so long because there is no way politically you'd ever end up with anything other than a progressive tax system. There's just no way. There's just way too many people at the lower end that would want to be taxing the higher end at a higher rate. It's just, that's just how it has to turn out. Not saying that's good or bad, but you're saying we had no choice. It has to be this way. I'm just saying that the realities of how we do democracy in elections, that if anyone came in and was like, you know what? Rich people, poor people, people in the middle, let's all pay 20%, cut every deduction and just off we go. People would be like, no way, that's not fair. The rich should be paying more. The rich should be paying more. They, you know, it's also based on the idea of, well, they have so much more. Shouldn't they pay so much more? Again, I'm not saying these are the perfect watertight arguments, but these are, you know, if that's if that's your political motivation as a budding politician moving forward is to try and get away from a progressive income tax system in this it country. It seems logical to me. I don't care about the left or the right at all. Just step back from it and try to look at it logically. It just doesn't make any sense to me. One kind of snarky argument that I've heard people make is let's say you're high income and by high income, people usually mean high wealth on this thing too. Mm -hmm. So they try and use those interchangeably, even though they're technically not the same thing. Um, One big thing that our taxes pay for is national defense. Don't you as a high wealth individual have so much more to lose than someone that's low wealth. Just like you've shitty argument. I understand. But then they say, well, if, if you agree with that, then maybe shouldn't people that are having more of their wealth protected by the army, shouldn't they pay more for that army? Again, not putting my horse no, in front yeah. of any of these cards, but yeah. these are the arguments that yeah. people have made, it's, or at least ones that seem halfway intriguing to me and, and don't just kind of die on arrival. It's It doesn't incentivize, incentivize people. Yeah, I mean, to, it, 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 the higher you, t- you know, when you increase taxes on anything, it discourages that action. Increase sales taxes on red T-shirts, you're discouraging people from buying red T-shirts. And increase taxes on, on generating income, Insofar as you view income as generating value, you know, like incomes connected to the value that you create, you're disincentivizing the creation of value. You are absolutely you are. Yeah, it just, it's never made any sense to me at all. I, and I, and again, I understand the concept of lower income having to pay the same amount as a higher income when it, it obviously that that rate affects them much greater than the wealthy. I get that. But it almost like makes sense. Can't we go no income tax to a certain level and then start 15, 18% from there? I mean, if you cut the I mean, taxes, wouldn't that generate more taxes, tax um, revenue? Yeah. You know, people have always done studies looking at um, this idea of, of responsiveness to changes in taxes. You know, um, there's this curve called the Laffer curve in economics, and it tries to. I heard it tries to relate the relationship of the tax rate that you're imposing and the tax revenue that you generate from right. that rate. And, you know, the big lesson is, one of the big lessons is simply increasing, well, first off, doubling the tax rate is not going to double the tax revenue. So, like, if you're at 5% right now, let's say you're a local government and you're at 5% right now and you need to build a new bridge and you just determine you need twice the revenue, doubling the tax rate is not going to double the tax revenue, right? And then when you get to the very upper end of the Laffer curve, the idea that maybe even increasing tax rates might decrease tax revenue. Like if you get high enough, you might actually lose revenue, right? Usually those rates are estimated to be pretty high, like 60, 70% for income. But nevertheless, that's still going to exist as, as a range. And it should be understood that it's out there. 
Um, but a lot of studies have, have looked at changing, you know, federal tax rates and, you know, how do the rich respond to these changes in tax rates and, you know, revenue tends to be pretty steady, which is saying that, you know, people are pretty responsive, at least at the high end of the income distribution to changes in tax rates, moving money to places where it's not going to be taxed. They're pretty sensitive to that and they're, they, they will move around and it's such that, you know, what you see is maybe you lower the tax rate, revenue stays about the same. Maybe you raise the tax rate, the revenue stays about the same. It's just the tax base that's adjusting and, and you end up with, with similar revenue at the end of the day. Really? That's a that's an oversimplification, but broadly speaking, yes. I don't know. It just seems the uh, it just it discourages additional achievement. I know when I had to do with hard business. I mean, was- certainly. I mean, if, if you compared a 0% income tax rate with a 40% income tax rate, unquestionably, yes. Right. The question is on the margin, how much does it? If we raise it from 35% to 36%, mm, would it change a lot? Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. A problem with that argument is, you know, if we change it from 20 to 21, do we see a lot of people changing how much they work? Probably not, right? 21 to 22, maybe not. But then we keep playing this game and now you're comparing 20 to 40 and now that's going to matter, right? Oh, you're saying it's a gradual increase. Right. So, yeah. you know, you could you, you could say right now, what if, I, I don't know, what oh, was it 30 Eight percent is that the mm-hmm. highest um, federal tax? Let's say it's thirty-eight percent. What if they made it thirty-eight point one percent next year? And everything, obviously, nothing else always stays the same, but everything else stayed constant. Would we really see a lot of people working a lot less? Probably not. You know, probably not. Our models would have to dictate that they would work a little bit less, but you know, probably not. But if you know, you got to compare the big changes. You know, because I think the way you're thinking about it is zero to forty, right? And that's yes. Unquestionably, yes. Period. End of story. You know, problem is we're always in this like incremental world that finds us now with tax rates that are pretty high. Yeah, that's how we're lulled to sleep. Yeah, until we wake up one day and go, "How the hell we get here?" Right. You know, the highest marginal income tax in U.S. history. You know what that was? I think it was right after World War II, and I think it was Truman that did it. Ninety percent or something. It was 94% is what it was. But it was at a level that only applied to like less than 100 people. What was it, I think, when we came out of the 70s, right? Or when it, when Reagan became, I think it was pretty, I, I pretty hefty know. then. Offhand, we, I yeah, mean, I it's it was, easy to look that up, but no, I don't know that often. Yeah, I think I think it was, it was pretty hefty then, too. I don't know. Um, Remember getting that first paycheck when you're like, <laughs> the withholding, you're like, God, come on. Every kid goes through. Oh yeah, of course. That's important. I, we should take more advantage of that. That should be like a, that should be a big teaching moment. Like right, that needs to be a, like that 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 frustration and that 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 angst and that 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 bitterness that, that from deep within it's seeing that for the for like stoke that fire. But then what happens? Stoke that though, fire in but, the kid. But what happens though that that doesn't even? Hopefully, a healthy distrust for the government. That's what you're hoping right. happens. Of course. <laughs> That's why we need to stoke that flame. Yes. It's like you got the flint going, and it's starting. You got to feed the little sticks on there. You got to get the thing going. But to a portion of the population, it doesn't doesn't stick because they didn't have that. The anger wasn't. <laughs> I guess so. anger is an energy. Yes, yes, indeed. Maybe not anger. Maybe anger is not the right. I'm not doing a good job picking the right words today. The this frustration. frustration, frustration, frustration. There we go. Anxiety. <laughs> They're taking my money. Disbelief. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I remember. I remember I, it too. I remember I worked under the table for a little pizza shop, yeah. you know, and I used to making what I made, and I took it all home. It was a kid. Got that first real job. Yep. 18 years old, got that first paycheck. I could not believe. Oh, yeah. Uncle Sam wanted a bit. 
I couldn't believe. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't gotten any easier no. since either, man. And everything's like, and maybe this even feeds into it, everything... I'm trying to think the last time I actually got a physical paycheck. I think it was the very first one at Duquesne because you need like the physical one before the direct deposit right, can go. Right. So I'm like never looking. I'm, I rarely look at pay stubs. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's just like that's the that's the number that shows up every couple of weeks, you right, know? <laughs> right. No, I get it. Do you remember the early 90s? So I was born in 1979. So, so like I was about 10. Tell. Glory days for our Oakland A's, hey, by the way. Coming, coming out of the 80s for sure, man. Coming out of the 80s for sure. Coming out hot, yeah. Uh, the reason I bring it up is because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and he said, you know, we need, I think we need a good recession. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? He goes, well, you know, one of the few things I like to do is go out to like a Applebee's or, you know, someplace and have a cocktail, have something to eat, and the service is atrocious. I'm like, well, where are you going with this? He goes, well, I think back to the early 90s when Bush 1 was in and we were going through like a recession in 91, 92, kind of like through 93 a little bit. And you had MBAers out there serving tables. And that was the best level of service and attention and <laughs> kindness I've ever gotten from a... And I'm like, that is your whole basis why you want a recession because you want better service? There's his, a uh, his point was that like that was an era that was like, you know, that's where... That's not where we are today. There's... There's very low unemployment now, right? Yes. And at yes. that time, there was higher unemployment, but it gave a better quality of life as a consumer. There's a give and take all the time. Right? There's this dynamic in macroeconomics where you could do what's called partial equilibrium analysis, or you could do general equilibrium analysis. What does that mean? Partial equilibrium analysis means you're just looking at the impact in one market. So to complete the analogy, your friend's just looking in the service market. <laughs> if you do the general analysis, there might be some other stuff going on that might end up outweighing the service. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of it, but I, I, I got what he was saying though, because you know, I, I you know, I, that feels like a good little stand up bit though. You know, like it's just. Everyone knows you're kind of BSing with this, but you got a good little nugget, so why don't you move forward with it? Yeah, it's, he's honest. Be a good, yeah. But I, but I do. I do remember the early '90s, and that was the that was the case. Jobs were scarce, and you had some overqualified people working a lot of service positions. Sure. You know. Yeah. I hope we're not going to go back to that, but that's you know. No, labor market's still pretty still pretty tight at this point. So we'll like see. Like when you say tight, you mean like we have low unemployment? Yeah. Low unemployment. So there's a lot of jobs. Like, is it kind of hard for employers to find employees? It certainly is. So, usually there's a push and pull with economics, right? But I find it interesting. Like, inflation's high, gas prices is high, but there's a plethora of jobs out there. That's not really the way it's been traditionally in the past, right? Um, Yeah. Usually, you know, when you see recessions and, you know, recessions and unemployment, you know, when we put that graph, these graphs that I was telling you about earlier from the Federal Reserve, when you put them up, um, no matter what series it is you're looking at, whether it's the unemployment rate or whatever it is, they always in the background have these like gray bars throughout the years. Um, and those gray bars uh, represent recessions. Okay. And so like when you just look at the unemployment rate, you know, we, I put it up there on the board when we're talking about unemployment. So what do you guys see? What, what, what do you see with regards to the gray areas and the unemployment rate? What do you see? I mean, like, in a gray area, in a gray. You know, usually unemployment goes up during recessions. Right. Um, I suppose you could say. Um, I believed we were talking a little bit about this earlier. I believe they declared a recession in early slash mid twenty twenty when they shut everything down. It may have been less than six months, but I believe. Don't quote me on that. I believe they did declare that to be a recession. I suppose you did see a very. 
big relationship there between a recession and unemployment over those months like March to June 2020. Shutting the economy down? Yeah. (laughs) Unemployment went up to like, as calculated, it was like 30% or something, you know, and then obviously, you know, came back down, but. This is unique. No, it's unique that the the, the job market's pretty strong. Um, people, at least the word on the street is, you know, employers having a hell of a time trying to find employees. No doubt. Um, that's that's usually not the case in recessionary times. Right. It's usually not. So again, it's been it's been a hell of a time to teach macro these last couple of years. It's been interesting to look at this stuff. And I'm not a macro person, as I'm proving here today. Um, you fool me. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're living in unique times with regards to the economy because so much of you know teaching macro in the you know twenty teens is that what we call it the twenty tens whatever that was. Mm-hmm. It's just like ships humming along. Like you just you know at least there's like interesting things to talk about now. At least it's just like you know students could say, oh, I heard I read this in the paper or I heard some story about blah. Or, this hasn't happened since then. It's like all right, let's go look into it then. One nice thing about macros, there's a lot of data to throw at the issue. A yeah. lot of fun things that I look at in micro sometimes don't have data that's readily available, which is frustrating. Macro, I'm not a macro guy, but macro certainly doesn't lack for a trove of data. All right, let's turn our attention to markets then. Markets. Yes. So what has been on your cranium recently? For wagering markets. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished up a couple of papers that I'd kind of been bouncing around for the last couple of years. I may have talked about them here. Um finished up a paper on Calcutta auctions. That is an auction system where uh, the data we have are from a private NCA tournament Calcutta auction. So you have 64 teams in the NCA tournament, right? Technically it's 68, but you just count those first pairings as just one team. So you have 64 teams in the NCA tournament. We are going to sequentially auction these teams off depending on how many games. So if you win in auctions, you paid the most for that team. Okay. You get paid off a known beforehand percentage of the overall pot collected from all auctions together, and that's what your team pays off. So, for example, if you win um, one game, maybe you get one percent of the total pot. If you win two games, maybe you get two and a half percent of the total pot, et okay. cetera, et cetera. Where the winning team gets like, I don't know, fifteen percent. You could set these wherever you like. Calcutta auctions tend to like group themselves around these common numbers that a lot of people use. So the question to you, if it's the NCAA tournament and um, there, by necessity, there's at least two different ways that you could order these auctions, okay? The way that this group orders it is they do all the lowest seeds first all the way up to the top ones. So they do like 16 seeds, 16, 16, 16, 15, 15, 15, 14, 14, 14, okay. all the way up to one. You also, there are Calcutta auctions out there that do it drawn out of a hat so you don't know who's coming up next you you know who's coming up next in the other way but you don't know who's coming up next this one let's assume we're doing it that way who was really good last year gonzaga they were pretty good weren't they Mm -hmm. let's say you draw gonzaga first okay how much do you pay for them Mm -hmm. it's a hard question to answer certainly because the calculus that you're trying to figure in your mind is what do i pay what am i expected to get back but you don't have any information on who's paying anything for anyone else what if you get gonzaga for a dollar and then the pole like explodes. That's the greatest purchase ever. What if you think it's going to be huge? You go like 12,000 and then it peters out. Right. You might not even get all your investment back if right. they win. Right. Probably not. Well, actually, the math wouldn't work that way. But nevertheless, you've, you've got this variation in, in, in outcomes. And it's just, it's at this unique intersection of like all these existing wagering markets that we've studied. It's like, 
there's a fixed portion to it in the sense that the percentages don't change and you know what percentages are going in and the amount that you paid for your entrant that doesn't change like there's a lot that stays fixed in this but there's a lot that's variable too like you don't know the pot size right that's a function of everyone else's behavior along with yours because right. you don't know the pot size you don't know the exact payout so like if you make a money line bet on the a's tomorrow okay you know what you put down mm-hmm. if they win you know what you win mm-hmm. at the time you make the bet absolutely not the case in the calcutta auction you don't know there's that uncertainty unless it's the only time you know all of that is the very last one that the, you're end, yeah. the very yeah. very last one yeah. So there's just, uh, it's just, it's unique. And there's, um, no one's ever looked at it before. I tend to find myself down the path of doing things people haven't looked at as opposed to trying to improve upon what other people have done. So it's been fun. I've, I've thought these auctions, my, my friend of mine's been telling me about these things for a while now. I think we've got 12 or 13 years of data. Calcutta auctions. Calcutta auctions. Who, named, who named that? Uh, it was, uh, I've looked into this and there's, there's just not a lot of information about these things out there. It appears to have been the case that there were horse races done in Calcutta in India that were not exactly this structure, but they kind of resembled it. It was something like, let's say we have a horse race and there would be 10 winning tickets, 10 winning tickets, 10 winning, 10 vouchers sold for each entrance in the race. Let's say we've got eight horses in the race. So there's 10 for horse one, 10 for horse two, 10 for horse three. Then people would go out and buy those. But I think the price for those were fixed. And then there'd be a market secondary to that where people would start trading them around and buying them for more and less. I think that's how that market worked. I'm like, that's 90% of it. If I, I might be a little bit off, but that's more or less, I think, what happened. So it was, I think, mimicking that secondary market of people paying different amounts, but still getting that fixed amount from the win. Okay. Um, something to that effect. But no, it... um. As I wrote in the paper, I said, there's one other paper from 2003, let's say, that talked about Calcutta auctions. I didn't really understand it that well, but it was basically using Calcutta auctions to try and value startup firms for venture capitalists. Some mechanism that that would work there, which is cool. Like, that's fine. When I read the paper and I realized it wasn't really going down my path, I'm like, "Eh." so I kind of wrote in the paper that I wrote, I said, you know, in 2003, so-and-so wrote this paper about using Calcutta auctions to uh, value, you know, startup firms in a venture capital capacity. I said, clearly that's kind of orthogonal to what we're talking about here. That's not what we're getting at. They wrote in that paper, no one's ever written anything about Calcutta auctions, (laughs) And no one cited that paper since. I'm the first one to cite it. So I think my line was some of the effect of, despite there being voluminous literature on auctions taking place in India, this appears to be the first paper trying to look at this as a wagering market and understanding what's going on. So that's one thing I was looking at. And that's fun. I like that paper and that was good. And that's out right now getting reviewed. Um, And then I need to send out another paper. I was planning on doing it this week, but I don't think I'm going to be able to. this is going to be very boring to you, but um, think about like a futures wagering market. So like, um, uh, so uh, if you go right now, you can go to any of a number of sites and you could be giving odds on who's going to win the AL Cy yes. Young. Okay. Yes. Maybe this one's like plus 200, 300, 400, whatever. Some of them are really extensive. I've seen them upwards of like 50 names. That's usually earlier in the season, but like there's a lot of names. Now they kind of narrow it down because you kind of okay. know who the good guys are. But okay. So, that's a futures market. Think of a money line. So A's versus Royals. Right. Like that could be a game. Okay. So maybe the A's are like plus 150 and the Royals are like minus 135. Okay. 
through equations, you could figure out what the implied subjective probability is. So like if you have some assumptions about the nature of like the commission or the, um, yeah, the commission, the VIG, stuff like that, mm -hmm. expected returns, you could punch those numbers into an equation and it'll spit out the subjective probability. So for something like that, the A's would be like, you know, 42% and the rolls would be like 58%, okay. let's say. That's an implied subjective okay. probability. Then what we do typically in like baseball wagering market papers that I've written is for all those teams that have been given a 58% chance to win by the market, do they actually win 58% of the time? Or do they win more? Do they win less? Do we have enough statistical information to say that that's different or is it just kind of noise? It's not strong enough. So to that end, for that futures market, there's a way that you can come up with the subjective probability of all those people winning. Okay. Different math that you it. have to do. I get it. I'm so following. there's an existing way of doing it. It's called fair odds, and everyone just kind of assumes that's the way to be done. I came up with a different way that kind of favors the favorites a little more. Mathematically, it's you know all the Greek letters and sure. all that stuff. The favorites are a little more favorite-y, and the underdog's a little more underdoggy in mine. But it's not, it's not by much. It's it's I mean it depends particularly on what you want to come up with, but it's ultimately it's interesting to think because this is math at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think like one thing I've always liked math and I've always been pretty good at math. And the nice thing about math is you're always working toward an answer. Mm -hmm. Like there's an answer you're working towards. That's always what I especially when I was in high school. I remember sitting there. I'm probably gonna get shit for this. <laughs> I, me I remember sitting there in math class. I was I love math. I was really good at math. And, you know, was, you know, took a bunch of physics classes in college and econ, just a lot of math. I've always been decent at math. And then I'd go to like English class, uh, mostly English class, or not even necessarily history class. And I've always read really, really slow. So maybe like the cards were stacked against me. But I remember we had one in high school, it was a junior, and the teacher we had was like very like free love kind of hippie style. And so while the, chairs were in a circle in a classroom to facilitate conversation which is a good thing okay. we didn't like sit in our you know the seats with the excuse me the seats with the desk you know like the little desk that you wrote on we sat like on the floor like you know cross-legged chatting you know because that's you know we're just you know free love and all that stuff right and so just going back and forth and i, I just whatever book it was we we're reading you know student raised their hand well i think you know protagonist one was feeling this because of a b and c okay okay good and then like another person i feel like the antagonist was not given their fair shake because they didn't feel this yeah okay good. so i'm like it's like happy fucking love time man. like just <laughs> anyone spitting anything out and it's like everyone's just it's happy to like let's just share our feelings about oh, this and great. what i think and I, so I, I well i've dialed a bit back on that i just i i have i came from a very cynical point there in high school of just being like in literature, there's all this symbolism. And I believe it to be there. I was just very skeptical of it at the time. And because I wasn't a very good, quick reader, I think I just, reading was always kind of You're difficult math for guy. me. I'm a math person. Yeah. And so you'd get to some book, you know, Catcher in the Rye or right. wh whatever it is, right? right. Great works of art, right? And Debatable. <laughs> well, sure. And, and again, <laughs> I, I'm trying to pull you back on my economic Sorry. takes here. You really shouldn't be getting me for the literature takes. And, you know, I just remember, you know, oh, that's going to be, that's symbolic of, you know, uh, people going off to war. And I'm like, I mean, it could be, but it also couldn't be. Like, it also, like, do we have the guy on record as, like, saying like that? Because if not, I mean, 
it's suggestive of that. I, I agree. But to say, I mean, you took it way it, too literal. It probably is. But <laughs> all I'm saying is, it probably is. But all I'm saying is, like, it could possibly not be. It could also maybe not be. So how do we know? And that certainty of math always made me happy. Anyway, we're way off track now. Anyway, that certainty of math. What I find funny about doing things like this is doesn't it seem like when I tell you we've got that money line and we've calculated it with this formula of 58% and 42%, doesn't it seem that's the answer? Like I've just gotten to the answer. There's like seven different ways to calculate that. Different assumptions, all that. I understand. It's interesting to me that it's not, it's not that it's not settled. It's not that it's not settled because no one's, no one's trying to sell it because you have different assumptions lead you to different places. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. It's still, you take a step back and you're like, how have we not, like, how do we know it's not 41, not 42? Like, it's, why can't we solve this? It's math. Aren't we doing math? So to that end, you've got this fair odds way of calculating subjective probabilities from futures odds. Right. I'm doing it a slightly different way that gives internally consistent estimates, just different estimates. Different, and it's right. ultimately an empirical question of, do the numbers at the end of the day look more like mine or more like theirs? Or do they fall in the middle? They probably fall in the middle, to be honest with you. You're no just, no one's way ever. doing it. It is, yeah. The fair odds way is a way of... I'm trying to think of a way. Fair to like, odds. It's called fair odds. It's basically... What a, what a concept. <laughs> fair odds. It's basically like... I'm trying to ease, think of the easiest way to describe this. Basically, think, think of... Think of what the return to that bet would be because like a plus 150 bet is going to return less than like a plus 300 is going to return less than a plus 400. Right. Think, I'm sorry. I was going down my path. Um, think about that, that, that line alone by itself is implying a subjective probability all by itself. Mm-hmm. Do that for all of them. Okay. Add up all those subjective probabilities. It's always going to come up to a number bigger than one. Okay. 1.1 or whatever it's going to be. Then you take that number that you added up to and then divide the subjective probability by that. And that's your actual subjective probability at the end of the day. So like if you calculated 150 as, uh, I think that's 40% actually, right. 40% and then we added it up and then we divide it by that number, it may end up actually being the fair odds is going to be like 37% instead of okay. 40. Okay. So you just have to like have a criteria, both of our systems, have a criteria for all of the bets, basically uh, like aggregate them adjust accordingly such that now when we've done it, because it doesn't make sense to have 10 or 15 subjective probabilities mm-hmm. that add up to a 1.15. No, it needs to add to one. Got it. Has to add to one. Got That's it. the point of probabilities yep. is they always add you up think? to one. So you adjust that and off you go. Mine is, let's say, how much, how much do you need to bet on each entrant such that the return at the end of the day on all of them is equal? So for example, um, let's do a simple one. Let's say in the Super Bowl, the um, Bengals are plus 100 and the Rams are plus 1,000. Okay. Just I realize that's not what the line was, but just okay. throw it out there. Um, I would need to bet 10 times as much on the Bengals right. than I would on the Rams. the Rams, right? So then we add all that up and basically just take the ratios of that, add it up, divide, and move through the process and get a subjective probability in that manner. I call it quasi-paramutual because you're kind of doing a paramutual thing when you do that, at least in my mind, you are. Um, it still produces consistent estimates, which is nice. Obviously, <laughs> consistency is a good thing when it comes to math. No doubt. Um, but yeah, and then I just did a couple of examples there. I've just always liked wagering markets, and those were kind of ideas I'd had banging around for a little bit that were mostly done. I just kind of cleaned them up and got them to where they needed to be and out the door. 
it's interesting to me when I look at like uh like you know take FanDuel right so the money line and then you take you know or let's say let's say hockey there's always the money line then there's you know one and a half yes you know I always it's interesting to look at the difference between in percentage between the money line and the one and a half and compare them from game to game and it just never there's no there's no real uniformity really. There. Doesn't appear to be. No, I, I bet you could systematically look at that and maybe find something. You probably could, <laughs> <laughs> but to my casual eye, no. You know. Yeah, the nice thing about wagering data too is you're dealing with a lot. Um, you know, the wagering, the baseball wagering stuff that I've done. You know that the Calcutta auctions paper I was telling you about is less than a thousand observations. As wagering market stuff goes, that's very small. Wow. I mean, that's all. I mean, people. I'm sure referees will complain about the size of the data set. To which you're not wrong. Eight hundred as it comes to wagering markets is minuscule. Go ahead and show me the other people that are looking at this that have bigger data, and I'm more than happy to Got try it. and do what they're doing. This is the Got first it. thing that's been done. And I'm very clear in the paper, too. Like, this is a very first step into something that could have a ton of data thrown at this. And I think these Calcutta auctions are starting to get more popular, too. Okay. There's a lot of data, I think, that could be thrown at these things. Um, so as a first stab at it, just as a framework of how to look at these things, I think is, is useful. Um, but when it comes to the baseball wagering market stuff, I mean, we're in the... You know, tens of thousands of observations no there. Doubt. You know, twenty, thirty, no forty thousand observations. You're betting on every single team, every single game across all those seasons because there's two bets per game. Question. So there's a bunch of these online companies that did have service, the FanDuel, and there's like just a bunch of them. Why are all of their lines different? Are they all creating their own odds internally and, I, and managing that, or is there a, do they? Do they pull from a clearinghouse? Is there one basic official location of data? I would say, I don't know this with certainty. I would say the really big sites, like the FanDuel's and the big, big ones out there, they might be employing people to set lines for them. Or actually, probably more accurately, have their people writing their own algorithms to generate these lines automatically. So you have variation algorithms across sites. That could be a reason. Um, but I think you might find there's a lot of places to bet more uniformity than you think. Cause I think there's kind of central places that are establishing lines and maybe like, so you could bet on the app called the score. Like you could bet on that one if you want to. Right. I don't, I don't know. If I had to guess, I don't think they're employing people to set lines. I think they're pulling from somewhere else. Maybe they pay a service to pull lines for them and just go with that line. But I mean, there are ver there's variation in lines. That's a big thing. I know we talked about it before. Mm -hmm. um, um, James Holzauer writes a weekly column, uh, excuse me, a monthly column in The Athletic that just kind of pulls back the curtain on sports wagering because he's a professional sports wager. Mm -hmm. And I know we've gone over this before too, but like how refreshing in this day and age that he could just have a column that just talks about this in very plain terms and talks about the strategies behind this and Normally. how you move forward. Yes. As opposed to, wow, look at this CD guy when he was, I know I've said this before, but like when he was on jeopardy, like, you know, it's, uh, he was, you know, the announcer guy, whatever his name is, um, you know, comes out and says, you know, Alex Trebek. no, no, the, the now like Johnny Gilbert, Johnny, oh, Johnny Gilbert. Gilbert, Johnny Gilbert. Right. Thank you, Johnny. Um, <laughs> You know, a professional sports gambler, I think, is what they described him as. Uh -huh. If that was 10 years before, there's no way they would have said that. There would have been, like, a resident of Las Vegas or a, you know, uh, they would have found something that wouldn't yeah, have used those I, terms. What, what, I know. Yeah, definitely. Um, but anyway, when he two. talks about it, you know, because he's made a living of it. Clearly, he knows what he's, what he's doing. doing. What are the strategies? And his whole thing is you need to have a system. You need to stick to it. 
you know, this, you don't become a successful sports wager by like going big on the Super Bowl and winning. Right, like right, right, it's, right. it's getting 52% over the long haul. Like that's how you do this. Consistent numbers. And a big thing he always talks about is like, you got to be signed up with a bunch of different books because you got the best line matters. Uh-huh. If you can get 160 versus 150, especially that in baseball, right? But like, not only that, but like, this isn't one, like this is over and over and over. Like you got, if there's that better line that pops, like you gotta, you gotta find, don't just find it's the a, first one. That's a job. There's man. services yeah. and there's apps that now tell you like across a range of places, like that must be known, you know, maybe like these four use the same service, these four, but they've got all the, here are the different lines from the different places. If you're interested in betting on this game, they have it updated live. And so like right now, if you can get the A's 152 instead of 148, you do it oh, because of course. The, of those course. are the margins that of course. those are the margins the that get it. Yeah, it's, it's that stuff and sticking to your model. And if, you know, also good, like um, post hoc reasoning as well. Like, you know, you could have made a very good bet, a very wise bet, a high expected value bet that you still lose. Like you could have made the right bet and you lose. Like don't punish, like you can't, you need to sit back and assess your system for its merits not whether you win the bets or lose the bets, because then you just get too too blinds. Myopic, know. like right, one. right, yeah. You know, because I students sometimes have a tough time grasping that one. I say, all right, um, if I say um, if you make a bet, um, uh, you give me a dollar, and if I flip heads, you get five bucks. If I flip tails, you get uh, two dollars. What would you bet? And they're like heads. I go, it comes up tails. Did you make a bad bet? Right. It's that. It's the trying to separate the you know these are these are these are uncertain outcomes that we're wagering on there's uncertainty to it you could have made the right decision with uncertainty no right question. i mean and that that goes to everything in life right i mean you could have okay you could have made the bad decision to get in your car after having a beer too many and you got home did you make a good decision you know it goes it's everywhere i mean it's just trying to separate the process from the outcome risk versus uncertainty yes let's talk about that okay that's a good one you brought it to me. I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> risk. No, that's a good one. I think that was Frank Knight, um, the old uh, University of Chicago economist, I think was the first one that really fleshed that out in the book. Um, so risk is like anything that's going to be basically calculable at the end of the day. So like, let's say we're trying to decide if we're going to start a restaurant or not. That there, There's a risk to that. And the important thing is that we could actually put a number to that. So for example, we'll, we'll talk two different... Risk involves risk involves probability distributions. Let's get off the restaurant thing. Let's okay. go back. A, let's go back a step. Risk involves probability distributions of things happening. A certain probability of some things happening, other things happening, other things happening. There's two ways we could determine those probabilities. Okay. Either we know what those probabilities are, like a priori, like we know, like um, like rolling a die. I know there's mm-hmm. one six. Like we just we know that. Or you could look at like historical precedent and like figure it out. So let's say um, we do decide to start a restaurant. That's a risky proposition. Well, how risky is that? Maybe um, 30% fail in the first year historically, looking back over the last 50 years, let's say. Um, And maybe another 20% fail after five years and the rest are fine for whatever. We could use those numbers in our calculations moving forward to see if it's a worthy, you know, net profit or net present value prospect because we have the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so that's one nice thing about risk is you can calculate. Like risk doesn't challenge us moving forward. That That's not a hurdle. That's okay. just something that you deal with. It's like another cost if you want to think of it like that. Okay. Our, is, is the co- for our restaurant, is the cost of food a hurdle to our success? Is the cost of tables a hurdle to our success? 
I mean, I, I guess because it's a cost, but you could work around that and you could estimate around that and you could move forward mm-hmm. and see whether it's worthwhile or not. Well, risk is just the same way. It's just another thing you got to factor in, but we can factor it in. That's the important part. Okay. Uncertainty you can't factor in. So like uncertainty is that kind of thing where there's no, there's no probability distribution that you can get to. There's no reasonable probability distribution that you can get to. And without thinking this all the way through, I may get crap from my economist friends for this, but without thinking this through, I would say the following. So March 2020 hits, okay? Let's say you started a restaurant in January of 2020, uh, the, say November of 2019, before even any word of this got out. Okay. You had a risk profile that we just talked about. Yep. X percent chance of this, this, I know my costs, all of that, and mash it all together. Makes sense. Let's go forward. Let's do it. Let's open it up. Then Mar- March 2020 happens. And your, your restaurant didn't make it. What was the nature of the reasons and what could you have known moving forward? Well, you understood the risks of closing um, one year, five years, all of that. But the pandemic, I won't even necessarily say the pandemic itself couldn't have been risked away. Could you have come up perhaps with some risk model of some global pandemic happening? That might be a stretch. And certainly you would have got the very, very low probability tail outcome of that. Mm -hmm. But that is something you could have figured in. What I don't think you could have figured in, and I don't think the where the uncertainty in this process lies is the policy response. That you couldn't have reasonably guessed. You couldn't have reasonably guessed that, oh my God, there's this crazy thing. Everyone shuts. Like that was an unheard of world prior to it. Got it. You couldn't have worked that in. Got it. The argument as I see it, that matters here is risk is just another, it's not, it's not a cost, but it's just another thing you can calculate that you need to calculate. Mm -hmm. That's not going to prevent us from progress. Uncertainty, especially from the policy angle of things, that is an impediment to progress, right? Because if you have enough of that uncertainty popping up, people are going to, in our example, maybe hesitate on the, on the margin, hesitate to start a restaurant or maybe hesitate to start a business. That uncertainty in the long term, I don't like that. Right, we Got talk it. about uncertainty a lot too with regards to um, politics, and sadly, maybe our country is going that way. But I always say, imagine you're in a developing country. Pick whatever one you want in your mind. We don't need to single any out. Could you imagine a situation where you're considering starting a business, but you're also connected with a political party, and if your party doesn't win, they're going to come and shut your business down, or throw you in jail, or take your business away from you? Like that's on the table, and sadly, a fair number of places, probably more than a fair number of places, that's not good. That is not good at all. That prevents that kind of long-term horizon Certainly. thinking. And one Certainly. big thing, there's always these papers in macro. They're like, what are the variables that actually matter? In in like, there's so many macro papers written over the decades of like, what are the determinants of economic growth? Do you need a lot of capital? Do you need human capital? Do you need foreign investment? Like any possible combination of variables have been tried. Just just a, a just a truckload of papers over the decades have been written about this okay and so people try to write these meta-analyses of like well trying to see the forest from the trees what are the things that like tend to be positive or like significant more often than not Mm -hmm. and one big thing that is identified is like long-term investment like that's a big one like long-term like long-time horizon investment like not just how you do it in a country like that exactly well that's the point and that's like that might be a big explanation as to why you don't see that like you know long-term economic growth that you've seen in successful countries. Like, look at uh, my example. It's now dated, but, you know, I'd always tell the students, I go, look at that new skyscraper that PNC just built downtown mm-hmm. with the big triangle or the diamond on the top. I said, do you think that's paid off like this year? No, like that's a 
decades long investment. That's bi- I mean, it's a big, literally a big investment. It's a big building, a lot of money. Like that's a big, in- but they ran all the numbers, had tons of people, I'm sure, looking at the numbers and did it because whatever, you know, uncertainty of, you know, the floor falling out and the government, you know, obtaining that building, we have a reasonable reason to believe in this country that's not on the table. Got it. Right. But in other places it might be, but you need that long-term investment for that long-term economic growth. I mean, that's, that's heavy commerce. That's heavy industry. I mean, that's, it's like, that's big. You need that big, big investment. If, if people are not willing to ever look past like a year or two, right. Which given some of these developing areas, that's, that's rational to be honest Certainly, with you. Oh, Probably. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, that can be a, and is a real constraint to wealth. Well, what about, um, for an application for that or an example, what about commercial real estate? You know, like you'd say you're a commercial real estate developer and, you know, you've got your numbers and things look rosy in December of 19 and, and now you're halfway through projects. and It's a different world now for, at least to me, it seems, you are know. Are we going to warehouse people anymore is the question. That's it. Things are coming back, but are we going are. to return to, you know, that kind of like work environment where we warehouse people. It's interesting. I mean, it's, I think, I think people, I think people, you know, come March, 2020, everyone stayed home. And I think by and large, if you took the, the litmus of businesses as a whole in March, 2020 and be like, let's say we know we're home for the next two months. We have to be home for the next two months. Okay. How's business going to go for us? I think they would have been very pessimistic of it being able to be done and done well. Whatever it is you're doing, consulting, um, obviously mm-hmm. selling things is a little different in an environment like that. But broadly speaking, office workers working from home instead of from an office, I think right. they would have said no. And okay. I think it went pretty well. I think a lot of people were like, wow. Like, I think there's some places that found a little drop, little drop off in productivity. I think people... I, I think I think if you had asked managers, I think the the majority of them, the, maybe even the super majority of them, would have to admit, like that that actually worked out pretty well. People did their work, they were at home, they did their thing, mm-hmm. work got done, and that was that. I mean, there's more to the story than that, but I don't know. I just I, I don't see. I mean, I, I it's interesting. I I, I don't think you're going to see the 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 density of commercial kind of occupancy. In real estate, I don't think you're going to see that. I hear all sorts of businesses looking to downsize. Whether so it's, how, so you're whether it's corporate headquarters, whether it's right. I mean, also they're looking to find smaller places, looking to find smaller places, looking to find smaller places. They people seem people seem. I think people seem married to the fact that there is some value in being face to face. Like there's some creativity there. Like there's. We get something Depends out of that. Depends on the industry. Of course, of course. But there's some value to getting the group together. There's something to that. But in light of the record of how well it seemed to have gone, you know, it was stressful for people, obviously. But, I mean, if if you think of it, I mean, it shouldn't be, you know, I, I've got two little ones at home. There's no way I'd be able to, you know, do – it's tough, you know, when you've Certainly. got – But for people that don't or for people with older kids that can kind of watch themselves – you know, and they kind of work as well too. It depends right, on the work, right? You know, I, th- I think it went it went pretty well, and and you know, on the plus side, if you know all else being equal, if you're not going into an office, you don't have a commute, so there's like probably an hour at least a day that you Certainly. not have extra. Certainly, that if not if even if it means you're not even working more, that's another hour that you get. 
that's got to make people happy. Certainly. Happy people are going to be more productive, you know, if they're at home and they, you know, maybe they work, maybe they have a little office space set up at their kitchen table. Maybe they even have a home office, right? Maybe they like working from their bed and they just don't need to be on a, you know, whatever. It just, if they're more comfortable and they're getting more done, I don't think it's inconceivable to, to think of that. I don't think a lot of us would have said that in March of 2020, but in retrospect, it seems to make sense. No. And the interesting thing is too, is if we encounter this again, um, the difference will be, I think, is we know we can get through it. You know, we've now got that muscle. We know we, we know we've done it once. We know we can get through it. I mean, it's, it's ugly and it's a pain in the ass. We can get through it. Yeah, and given just the 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 lack of you know, it wasn't like we did have on the on the one hand, at least from a data standpoint, we did have some variation in policy response across states. Some pretty considerable variation in yes. policy response. Yes, that don't seem to have at least by a landslide led to better or worse outcomes mm -hmm. it just seems like the outcomes were kind of there maybe they got delayed a little bit here and there but it didn't seem like there was a strong connection one way or the other mm -hmm. obviously that's going to be a topic of debate moving yeah, forward sure, at certainly. least at face value it doesn't seem like that's the case right to that end insofar as people realize that i'm not sure they're going to take it and shut down again i'm not sure they're i'm not sure they're going to take that i'm not sure they would just my guess no i i, I think not you're on sure. something i mean maybe health measures i think people are People are willing to take health measures, but in terms of shutting the whole game down, I'm not, I mean, I don't know what would happen if, you know, a state tried to do that again. I, I would like to think, <laughs> being Americans with individualism, just, fuck it, we're going to do what we're doing. Exactly. They're going to have the restaurant. Come get me if you want to come get me. Come yeah, get all I, of us. I, I think, I think it's. I think too many learned. people's livelihoods, I too many people's learned. livelihoods. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of people that we cared about got hurt. And I think, you know, another thing I remember reading about too, trying to process all the emotions of whatever you're going through, sure. the stress that you're going through. Sure. There was this really neat article about how it was like all the, it was like the soft social net in your life. I can't remember the phrase they used, but it, was, it wasn't like the wife and it wasn't the kids and it wasn't the friends either, to be honest with you, you know, the people that your neighbors, it wasn't that you saw the people who stayed outside or whatever you did. Right. And it was like, you know, every day um, at Duquesne, they used to have a bar called the red ring. It's closed. Mm -hmm. They're putting a new one in. And there's basically like a standing invitation there every day at like four o'clock amongst a fair number of people. If you want to have a beer, like it's just, you don't need to text and ask. You're just kind of there. So like you show up, see your friends and like, those are like kind of the soft people and like the bartender that always worked there that we knew well don't have her phone number but like just know a lot about her and her life by virtue of that it's Absolutely. like all of that was like band-aided off you know and it's like those people are not the people that you've chosen to like craft your life with but they're still part of your life certainly and it matters and, certainly. and i think you know that's a big thing too it's like you just you know all of you know what makes life enjoyable is is the those the friends moments. you have and the yeah, and the absolutely. relationships that you have absolutely. and absolutely. a lot of that just got like just taken away and that's like that's painful like that that is painful that is painful it's and it's painful. painful for a lot of people and i don't think people will want to go willingly do that again i don't think so now you know again government rules with the the force of the gun so i mean that's mm -hmm. still there at the end of the day but mm -hmm. i just i don't i have to I would like to believe, I don't have to think anything. I would like to believe that given the experiences of that, given that it didn't really achieve what people wanted it to achieve, given that it was kind of haphazard, it was just kind of seemed like no doubt by the seat of your pants, kind of figuring out what we're doing on the fly. didn't seem like there was really any plan dates being extended. All of that. 
I just I, I can't see people wanting to accept that as a policy solution moving forward. It's a fascinating look when you step back and look at it all. It's fascinating to see that um, that tug between federal and state rights was on display big time. Yeah, and I mean it really. I mean, it came down to the states really with that stuff when it came to to, to COVID policy and, and what was to be done about it. Um, but it was. Uh, I mean, I mean there were some states. Um, I was in Texas, but I wasn't in Texas until um, 2021, where just talking to people and friends of mine that live down there, they're like, yeah, it was a couple of weeks of weird in March, but then it was just back to normal ever since. You know, like just nothing, you know, after that. And I have a friend in Idaho, and they said for the most part it was kind of like that too. Yeah, just, you know, there was a couple of weeks, and then everyone figured like onwards and upwards. You know, yeah, it's just, I don't, I, I don't, I, I definitely hope we don't go, we don't go back to that no. again. I just, uh, I think I hope that we have that emotional muscle that it takes because I I don't think that you will get states to capitulate like that. Some states. Yeah. I mean, again, that is in theory, one of the features, not bugs of federalism is that you do have different policies and yes, it's costly, but people can vote with their feet. And you do Absolutely. see a lot of people leaving a lot of larger cities and moving to areas that were a little more open. Maybe that's them expressing their preference of wanting to be in mm -hmm. places that are a little more mm -hmm. open. And maybe there's, I mean, it, it's, you always see like net migration. So you get the sense that it's like, wow, only people leaving and no one going in. There could be people going in. Certainly. It's just on net, you're seeing a loss, you know? Yeah, they're going in. They're coming across the border and going in. <laughs> there's probably some of that but going I mean, on like, too. San Francisco, I think, is the one that saw, I saw some ranking. Like the out migration was perhaps most severe out of San Francisco. Oh, maybe it was. Maybe I think it California wasn't. in general, um, right? But that not say no one moved to San Francisco in the last two years. Of course, you know? it's I ridiculous. Mean, so, no, no, hundred percent. It is what it is. Hundred percent. Yeah, I would think. I, I, I would think ultimately uh, we've learned some lessons. I, I would certainly hope so. I would hope so. Yeah, jeez. And, and I think it only happens one, about once every hundred years. So I hope we don't go with another, yes, another I know. pandemic for another hundred years. For certain. Yes. Yes. Let's uh, let's not do that. <laughs> Did you go a good time, pal? Very much. Always fun to come here. Yeah, but I, I can't I can't let you go though without a sports related question. Sports question. How are the A's doing talk this year? The, we won't talk about the DH. We know where how we the, both stand. On how that. the A's doing this year? Oh, yeah. Do we have to talk about the A's? <laughs> the A's and the Pirates. I put them in the same pot. Yeah. When you hear people bitch about like the latest um i think the latest was the latest football contract it was the quarterback just signed for 400 million was there there was a huge contract just signed it was a quarterback was it watson and cleveland there was one one just recently i think that it usurped that was there a rookie that just signed? Was there a second-year player? Well, I missed that if that's the I case. I thought I heard the number of I 400 million pulled up. I do know Juan Soto was offered an extension for the Nationals at like 400 that's something. That's it. Okay, so that's that was a 15-year extension, I think, for him. That's that would have paid baseball. 440, I think, is what it was. 440. So when you hear the novice fan just like bitch about the, like the, the monopoly money that that is, right? I mean, what's the intellectual argument for that? For paying him that much money? Yeah. It's something, worth it. Something simple. I mean, it's worth it. <laughs> I mean, like, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's worth it. He's a tremendously charismatic and popular player and productive player. What he brings to the organization, they anticipate making more revenue 
off of his signing, then they're going to pay him. There's a, a business transaction. I know a new national TV contract is up to be renegotiated, so they're expecting you know salaries to bump up accordingly with regards to that. Um, believe it or not, that contract, if I remember correctly, and again, since it was never finalized, I don't think it was ever made public, so I think people are just kind of speculating to the nature of it or maybe saying if you're going to have a contract like that, it's got to be like this. Um I think pretty heavily backloaded, so he'd be underpaid in the first years, which is a little weird because you kind of have to view it as a whole thing, not like like if you um if you had a two year guaranteed contract that paid you a dollar this year and twenty five million next year, would you not like that as compared to twelve point five, twelve point five for both years? Given it's guaranteed, you know, and it's all said and done. That always seemed a little weird to me. Um Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. I mean make it makes sense for the team, but um, well, maybe with inflation, you'd want your money quicker. But nevertheless, <laughs> hyperinflation, you'd want it tomorrow. What gets me about the Soto situation, and he turned it down, and maybe he's right for doing so. He's set to be a, a free agent after next year, I believe. Um, and he wants to try the market. Maybe he should try the market, and he's certainly got that. It's his prerogative to do that. Um, people are really coming back hard against the Nationals for, like, quote-unquote, not signing him and saying, well, you're just going to trade your star now. And I'm like... I'd say dropping four hundred and forty million dollars on someone is giving a, a a goodwill, a good faith effort towards trying to keep this person on your team. Mm. I mean, mm. could you make the argument that's underpaying them? Uh, sure, I'm sure there's some metrics you can come up with saying that's underpaying them. That's still committing yourself to four hundred and forty million dollars to one player who could break his leg tomorrow. And I mean, that's a lot of money. And I do also know. People are bitching at the owners. I think the owners are looking to sell the team, the Lerner family. Right. I think's looking to sell them, right. and they didn't want to. What's that value? Oh, like of the whole franchise, it'd be over a probably close to about a billion and a half would be my guess. I would say, but they're going to pay one player. But they're in Washington. That's the thing. That's a third of that worth of the team. Right. Well, over. I mean, one's a stock, one's a flow. But, right. Right. But, um, but theoretically. Um. And they're saying, well, they don't want to take on the contract because it's going to make it hard to sell the team. So they, it's like they, they're arguing out of both sides of their mouth. They're always bitching when you've got these cheap owners. They, what do people bitch about nutting all the time? Sell the team. Sell mm-hmm. the team. You're mm-hmm. cheap. Sell the team. Mm-hmm. Well, they're trying to sell the team. You're complaining they're cheap. They're trying to sell the team. They're trying to do the thing that allows them you know, to sell the, the team quicker. Are, if you don't win, <laughs> the fans are never happy. It doesn't matter what you do. If you don't win. I, I don't. I mean, I'm pretty agnostic when it comes to owners at the end of the day and try to kind of view it more from their lens of decisions they make sure. and it's it's their business decisions because they're running a business this one i don't know it's just they're just piling on the owners and i'm like i, I don't really know what do, what do you want from these people do you want them to offer a huge contract they did do you want them to sell the team well if they did and they can't offer huge contracts then they're gonna have a hard time selling the team the like, fan, what, what do you want from the them? fan wants someone <laughs> to buy the team and win even if they lose money that's what the fan wants the fan doesn't care how much money they make they want to win they do, and the, and the formula to do that in smaller markets is, you know, the owner takes it on the chin financially. It's the only way, really, in theory, to have a shot to, shot to do it, unless you really get fortunate. I mean, just once in a while, a Tampa Bay season or an Oakland or a Kansas City season sprouts up there. Maybe I mean, you gotta close. you gotta thread the needle. You know, you gotta try and you know get all the ducks in a row. Try mm-hmm. and get your younger guys around at about the same time. Hit the hit the free agent market effectively and strategic, you know, not like blow out the, you know, get the right, get the, you know, Francisco Lariano types, you right. know, like the get the right little guy to right. plug in there. He's not yeah. going to win the Cy Young, but yeah. he's a, you know, Pirates viable part. Thirteen and fourteen, right? Right, 
and even in 15, I mean, yeah, they had 15. they spent almost $100 million that might on have been that the team. the best team that didn't make it. Probably might have been. I mean, they won the most games. But, you know, it's, that's a tough needle to thread, you know? Any hiccups there, any... Plus, who else is in your division? Yes, uh, right. A lot of factors involved. Uh, right, and I mean, it can be done. Tampa Bay shows it can be done, you know, with the heavy spenders there, and they, you know, they're a exemplar exemplary organization in terms no, of how to run stuff and who to pay for and Team when to trade. no one shows up to watch. No, but, you know, people have talked about that. And I've been down there. I, I didn't see the hockey and football stadiums, but I did see them drove past the baseball stadium, and it's like way the hell out there. Mm -hmm, it is. The hockey team down there is supported ravenously. Yes. And so is the football team. Well, they win. They're, well, the Rays win. Yeah. They do, but there the the argument is if you st it's so much easier to get to those stadiums if you stick the baseball stadium there Tampa fans will come out Probably. to watch them play. Probably, I mean it's it's not inconceivable. Sounds logical. It does. It does. I mean baseball's more games. It's a different sport, obviously. Um, but they'd have to build a dome just because of the rain, you know, down there. It just seems so like you say four hundred million dollars, and then I think back to eighty six and the sporting news I opened up. Oh my gosh. Ozzy Smith is going to make $1.5 Yeah. And George Brett's going to make 900000 And in my mind, I'm like, man, that's a lot of money. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah. And, was now, it, um, and now it's funny money, you know? I think, was it Nolan Ryan was the first to get a million? I think he was. Him or Messerschmitt, wasn't it? I think they didn't, didn't um, I, I could have sworn that the Yankees signed Messerschmitt or Goose, Goose Gossage. Okay. And then that was a free, first free agent. Gotcha. Okay. You know, and then Winfield came after that. Gotcha. Then Messer Smith. But yeah, you, it might have been Nolan Ryan was the first right. existing player on a team that was like kept Maybe. on the team Maybe by. That was it? Yeah, that could be it. But that's just. I mean, it's amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, where, where it's come. I mean, I mean, that's a it's economics. Not a bad place to be in to turn down a guaranteed. $400 million contract. The contracts are becoming more unique too. There's a lot of more creativity. Um, Correa signed somewhat surprisingly with the twins this last year. And he has a deal that's something like 30 million a year for three years, but he has an opt out after every single year. So like the creativity of like, let's lock in maybe some bigger money earlier, some opt outs later. So like if Soto, maybe is there an opt out after, you know, let's say he signs it and there's an opt out after like three years, maybe I can get some big money up front. If I'm still rocking and looking to get big, let's go back in the market and go big. It's the I, and then you know the teams are trying to get it on their end too. So just the dynamics of it, oh, I think, yeah. is kind of fun. It's such a it's a crapshoot because I mean, do you do you sign that long term deal so you know you have guarantees in there, or do you know that with just the inflation of baseball and money, it's like you know four hundred million will be eight hundred million ten years from now or five years from now. Yeah, and, and you have to view these contracts too as like they're all or none. Right? It's like either you sign the contract or you don't. It's not like you sign the pieces that you like because from the player perspective. It's like, why would you ever go for a team option? Like, if I'm kicking ass, I want to be a free agent. The only time they're going to exercise the options when I'm worth it, you know, but you have to look Things at the whole thing. can happen. Well, yes, but you still, you know, that team option, you know, maybe the team tacked on that option in exchange for, you know, more right. upfront that's guaranteed. Of it's just the of dynamics course. of it. Yeah. I, the negotiation of it, I, I think, is always interesting. It's a shame you only get to see the finished product. Um, I've got once in a while you'll get a peek in the, you'll, you'll get unpacked once in a while. I've got a former student of mine that worked on the Calcutta auction paper with me actually now that I think of it and he's in law school at Duquesne and he's gotten himself into like the sports law. He's gotten into that good. Okay. He's gotten he had a he'll probably correct me when I'm wrong here, but he had a internship with 
like the law firm or a law firm that was working on the Major League Baseball collective bargaining agreement. Okay. And all the particulars of that. So we got into that. Um, and I just, that's fantastic. I just oh, love yeah. hearing about the, the ins, like oh, yeah. hearing about, I don't know if he's privy to negotiations on these things or how that works. I think that would be tremendous stories over beer just to hear about those, <laughs> those particular, you know, something what did we you'll, trade? You'll get that story. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do have an, I have another student that's I think out of law school, but I think he's interested in doing sports stuff too. So yeah, I hope they, I hope so. It's always fun. Um, getting you know peeling the 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 onion back mm-hmm. a little bit and mm-hmm. kind of seeing how what's going on behind the scenes it's uh just a lot it's of, great it, it's crazy money it is it's a lot of money and i mean that's it i mean major league baseball even pales to the nfl when it comes to money that's flipped remember when it was in the 70s 80s and probably 90s it was the it was mlb oh, sure. the big sure sure sure. sure 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 remember um i want to say it was 87 i think there was a guy, there was a linebacker for the Giants who signed a free agent deal. He went from the Giants to the Skins. I think it was Wilbur Marshall or somebody <laughs> like there's that. A, there's a guy. Yeah, and, and it was like a, don't laugh, I think it was like a $2 million contract yeah. in 87. It was like a big thing because they weren't making that kind of money. Baseball was dwarfing them. Right, and the thing about baseball, too, is all that money's guaranteed. You know, with yes. football, it's like I... I do not know football contracts. I mean, all this like so and so signs this, you know, eighty million dollar contract for four years, and you got your signing bonus, and then they cut them the next year, and they don't have to pay. Like it's just weird. And it's weird how, how they, they say it, yeah, and the maneuvers that teams have to do, and what applies to the quote unquote cap oh, wasn't all that. I mean, that's a job in and of itself to manage. Teams hire right? several people to just figure to that man- stuff out. <laughs> no, they right? do that. It's I know so complex. It is. Is it too complex? I mean, it's too complex for the average fan. That's for certain. And but should the fans care about that stuff? I mean, is that part of the game? I think. I think the certain kind of fan that would select themselves into following the front office manipulations would probably be the kind of person willing to learn a lot about that. True, I would say that. I, and I would think with fantasy, I'm not the, I'm not a super that, huge NFL fan, so I, I'm you know I I just kind of chuckle at the contracts and I. It's never really come up in sports econ because we offer a labor econ class at Duquesne as well. And they do kind of like sports examples in that class. So Got I don't it. really feel the need to get into that in my class. Got it. When they do their individual kind of topics, they get to choose topics over the course of the semester. Sometimes they go down labor market stuff right and on. talk about it a little bit, but nothing too crazy. All right, my friend. Until next time. All righty. I can't thank you enough. This is fun. Can't wait. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good night. Take we'll care. See you soon, pal. All right. We're out. I hope I didn't keep you too long. We went no. two with two hours and fifteen minutes. Text Jim.